Hello, all of our listeners. We have missed you so much. It's Jay here, back with my co-host, as always. Yep, Rob the Riz Lifer. Good to see you guys. Rob the Cat, as they called you in high school. That's true. They called me a lot of things. Because you're quick. Yeah, I'm quick, like a cat. Yeah. 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 We're here. It's episode 12. We're back. Riz came up with the title, as he usually does, and it's I think it's his best work. Honestly, it's called Israeli Hot in Here. Yes, yeah. genius. <laughs> so we have a lot to get to on this show, and we are going. Our, the main theme of the show is going to be Israel, but that's probably going to be like three hours from now. So sit Buckle back up. and relax because we have a lot to get to first. And in keeping with what we normally do, uh, first of all, you know, I should say that we took a week off because we felt like. Sometimes you just need a week off to recharge. We also want to give people a little moment to catch up, but we'll uh, we'll go over a little more of that in our weekly Honest Abe's Housekeeping Hangout. Kick it, Jay. When he growed up, this tiny babe, folks all called him Honest Abe. Abraham, Abraham. Okay, so we don't have much for you. We're going to keep this, this short in uh, this segment, but... We did want to talk a little bit about the length of the episodes. We have gotten some critique from people who were like, dude, love your podcast. It's great. However, it's a little too long. You know, some of our episodes have been an hour and a half. Totally feel you on that. What we've sort of realized is that we're doing a weekly episode, not a daily episode. And it's really hard to fit everything we want to fit in every week. Especially especially in Trump land. Especially in Trump land. Yes. Where every day in Trump years is 100 days. So it's, uh, you know, it's... It's a lot to fit in. We got, you know, we're trying to keep it light. Sometimes we we have some heavy stuff to get to. I mean, it's it's a lot. So what I would what I've been telling everyone and maybe I don't know, maybe this seems intuitive to you. But if it doesn't take this as a suggestion, our episodes are are to be are meant to be digested piecemeal. So don't feel like you have to sit down and listen to the whole thing in your car and if you make it to work and you're only 45 minutes in then that means you can't listen to the rest it's like chiclets or like a hershey's bar you know it doesn't have to be consumed all at once it doesn't at all that's why they're broken up into little squares yeah and put it in the freezer and come back to it later exactly right (laughs) now don't actually put your laptop in the freezer if you're listening from a laptop or your phone for that matter or your car you're listening from your car you know don't feel like you have to do it all in one day um we love the idea of people taking 20 minutes a day and listening to it over the course of a week that way we will never feel pressured to have to do this insanity every single day because <laughs> it's, it's a lot it's a lot of information we know that and we designed it so that it's a lot of information because it's weekly because it's condensed into an hour hour plus so take your time don't feel pressured you have the whole week to listen to it sometimes too no pressure. And that's it. So we appreciate the feedback, but we're going to keep the episodes as long as they need to be, and you're going to have to deal with it. Tough. Booyah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Jay, uh, you have something else to get to? Yeah, how short do I to keep this? We have t-shirts and we have a Discord. Mm-hmm. Am I done? You're pretty much done. Yeah, that's it. We, we could actually move on. Uh, yeah, buy our t-shirts. Um, we're probably going to have mugs and things like that soon. We're trying we to figure that out. We're going to have more merch. Now, I ordered T-shirts for my entire family, but because Trump slowed the mail down, they haven't come yet. <laughs> but that's that's a whole other story. So, um, yes, and our Discord. Our Discord is get, is getting on like gangbusters. It's heating up. Mm, it's, it's really heating up. We really love everyone's hang- handle. My favorite for uh, my favorite of all the handles so far is Liberal Tear Drinker. So I, I really like that. I like conservative Karen. 
That's a good one. Um, anonymous socialist. You know, there's <laughs> you guys come up with some good ones. So it makes us laugh and we get to engage with you guys, which we're going to do a little bit of this week. Actually, a lot of this week. First, we have a brand new segment. This se- segment is a chance for Jay, my brilliant co-host, Aww. to let off some steam. Because I have let off a lot of steam on the show, if you haven't noticed. Jay is a little bit behind me. So we created a new segment, and this segment is called Jay's Ranterific Ride. Kick it, Jay. So if you've been following me on Twitter, you saw me go off on Teen Vogue this week. Uh, this came about very organically. I was perusing Twitter in the early morning, as one does, and I happened upon a retweet from friend of the pod, Jeremy Boring of the Daily Wire. His comment simply read, no. And the article below it was from Team Vogue, and the title of the article was, quote, Abolish Landlords. Housing is a Human Right. Now, I was simultaneously irked and bemused. Uh, Teen Vogue has political positions since when? Growing up, it was just a magazine girls in my high school would read to discover whatever pencils were on trend. So I clicked their profile and I continued to browse. Turns out, Riz, they take a great many political positions. Those positions are all on increasing levels of insanity. I I could guess probably a lot of Wokeville over there. Before we even get to Wokeville, we got mesmerizing story titles like We Spoke to Actual Witches About Brujeria, 12 Things You Should Know Before Getting a Gel Manicure, which throwback TV shows to stream based on your Zodiac sign, and my personal favorite, Bella Hadid can't get enough of these Ugg slippers. On top of these, you know, wonderful articles, there are tweet headings titled such things like, uh, we can do better than capitalism. Friendly reminder, having a degree does not make you more deserving of a livable wage than someone without one. Antifa grows out of a larger revolutionary politic that aspires towards creating a better world. We need to start organizing our communities around disrupting the capitalist and colonialist systems in which we're all forced to operate. Black-on-black crime isn't a thing. It's time to tear down our oppressive workplace structures, kill the capitalists in our heads, and build something more equitable for everyone, no matter their age or ability. And my aforementioned favorite about getting rid of landlords. Now, I've been seeing an inordinate amount of of Instagram stories and posts on my feed that lean radically left recently. I'll engage these people, very civilly, of course, so I can attempt to understand why they feel this way or what's pushed them this far. Each time I've done so, I've gotten a response that is somewhat in the realm of, I don't want to engage in conversation about my posts or back them up. I just want to share these ideas. Well, now I know where this is all coming from, at least one source. And the math all checks out. Uh, Of course, the median age of the people I know posting this stuff are within the generation of Teen Vogue editor-in-chief Lindsay Peoples-Wagner who is an as-woke-as-they-come 29-year-old African-American woman. She ticks all the boxes. Now, I'm not going to start flinging mud or mentioning the fact that this is a magazine that believes people should hold positions of influence no matter their ability or whether they've done anything to deserve said position or of influence. Oops, I mentioned it. But in all seriousness, this is a magazine that influences a very young and malleable demographic, and they push an aggressive, radical left agenda, not to mention countless articles on incredibly inappropriate and varied sex-related subjects that I'm highly doubting are screened by the parents of these underage children and articles that are ironically, blatantly anti-women, which is bizarre considering this is a young woman's magazine. One quick example encourages their readership, which is naturally a grip of underage girls, teen is in the name of the magazine, to snap and share naked selfies. Now, I'm no attorney, but I'm pretty sure that falls into the child pornography category. Forget about the fact that I think that that is morally reprehensible for a moment. If those photos do come from an underage child, it's illegal. Bottom line is that Teen Vogue is a Trojan horse, and it's quickly becoming more and more dangerous. The now online-only magazine calls out 
come for Gigi Hadid's fuzzy slippers, stay for the articles praising Karl Marx and communism. Let's be clear. I am for free speech and my, politi and my political ideology, like yours, Riz, places a great deal of responsibility on parenting. But the problem here is that this magazine is not what it seems. The editors seem to get off on pushing the envelope and shirking the responsibility to carefully educate young minds. They're not showing these kids all sides of an issue. They're not exposing them to different ideologies. They've planted their flag in the dirt and it is all the way to the left. And what's worse is that they aren't even arming these kids with any facts so they could at least back up these radical beliefs. There's not a single article that paints capitalism, democracy, or America in a positive light. These people should be held accountable for pushing this agenda to underage kids, and most ironically, doing it for profit. That's the most insane part of all of this. They are a for-profit magazine, and that's why they got involved in politics to begin with. When they published the article entitled Donald Trump is Gaslighting America, their readership went way up. When their readership went up, they could charge more for adverti advertisements, which goes to the bottom line of their parent company. And guess who their parent company is? Condé Nast. Now, these hypocrites are posting about how terrible the system is and how these kids shouldn't participate in the system while they are the system. The whole thing is insane. And if we bring awareness of these ridiculous people and this ridiculous publication to one person listening here, then it'll be well worth it. All right. Rant done. Sound off on this. Let us know what you think. Riz, any thoughts? Well, you know, I would say, uh, number one, don't read a magazine that's called Teen Vogue. If it has the word teen in it, you know why? Because teenagers are stupid, like literally all of them, even 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 the smartest of, of them are are pretty damn stupid. Uh, I do think this falls under the realm of parenting. Police what your kids are doing. I do it all the time. My kids are on YouTube. I have the uh, parental blocks on it. I don't let them watch certain things. Uh, whenever I see them watching something that's a little bit iffy, I take it away. But yeah, the other th I guess if there's one more thing I would say, these kind of magazines, the tabloid stuff and these sort of incendiary youthful magazines have always been leftist. They've always been crazy. You know, I don't think this is anything new. Maybe this is a more extreme case of it. Don't let your kids read Teen Vogue. Screen it. Maybe pull out some of the articles that are useful. There are no useful articles. That's That was a trick question. But very good rant, Jay. I like it. You know, I was so inspired by your rant, Jay, that I I decided I needed to do a rant of my own. So, do a rant uh, by Riz? Yeah, rants by Riz. Let's go. All right. Well, while we are on the topic of radical leftism, we uh, we should continue that. So, uh, this is according to an article that uh, was on CNN. Uh, this is a this is a little bit outdated. It's about two weeks ago, but there's a greater point I'm going to make. It's like two years. Yeah, exactly. So uh, more than 1,700 people have signed a petition urging Trader Joe's to change the labeling of some of its international food products, calling the grocery chain's branding racist. Quote, racist. Where have we heard that one before, Jay? Yeah, yeah, here we go. Um, so the grocery chain labels some of its ethnic foods with modifications of Joe that belies a narrative of exoticism and perpetuates harmful stereotypes. The petition, which a California high school senior launched two weeks ago, reads, It cites Trader Ming's, the grocery chain's label for its Chinese products, Arabian Joe for its Middle Eastern products, Trader Jose for its Mexican products, and a handful of other examples. The Trader Joe's branding is racist because it exoticizes other cultures. It presents Joe as the default normal and the other characters falling outside of it, the petition says. I mean, hang on a second. We are in America, right? And yeah. those other places are other places. Let me yeah. just... <laughs> 
We're not all one continent. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, like when this thing, when this story broke, I remember the first thing I did was I texted Jay the story, and we were joking about how where does this continue to go? Eventually, when COVID's over, of course, eventually we will be like going out to dinner. Like, where do you want to eat dinner? We'll just be able to say, well, we're just going to get food because we won't be able to say Chinese food. You right. can't say Thai food. That's going to be racist. It's going to be racist to say Thai food. Yeah, we were sort of joking about that, right? Now, a lot of people, I want to make two points about this piece, okay? Before I get to Trader Joe's response, which was surprising, actually. Number one, if you're listening, you might be saying, okay, the first thing you said was it was, signed, it was a petition signed by 1,700 people. It was launched by a high school student, okay? So you might be saying, okay, how is this news? High school students, as we just touched upon, do stupid shit all the time. This is why point number one I want to make for all you right-wingers out there, I want to reiterate that this is the people who believe or subscribe to this kind of nonsense are not do not make up a large subset of the people on the left. They are very fringe tiny little groups of people. You might be thinking, well no, they're not. This is mainstream leftist thought now. No, this is not a mainstream viewpoint on the left, okay? And you think that it is because there is no better marketing and branding apparatus in the world than the right-wing media, okay? If you have a business and you need some branding and marketing help, call Fox News and have them do it for you because they are incredible at doing this. They will take that Trader Joe's letter written by the high school student with 1,700 signatures, and they will present it as mainstream leftist thought. And they will say, this is your left. If you don't vote for Donald Trump, they're going to do this stuff to everything you know and love. I mean, that pillow guy has sold a lot of pillows. He has, right? It's, it's true. Yeah, the marketing and branding of the right-wing media is unbelievably impressive. And if you are someone who listens to Fox News or reads The Federalist or Breitbart or whatever you may read, just know that at some level you are being propagandized. And I'm not saying you're not if you only listen to CNN. But you have to listen to it all. Point number two I want to make is that although this is a very fringe sort of belief corporations seem to be caving to this kind of nonsense more and more. And I want to talk for a second about why that is. I think that corporations are sort of making a calculation and they're saying to themselves, 99.9999% of our customers are not crazy. They're regular people who don't invoke politics when they come into our stores. I mean, I for one know that when I go grocery shopping, I don't think about the efficacy of NATO. You know, I just think about getting the... That's weird. There you go. I just think about getting the groceries I need and getting the hell out of the store. And I think most people are like that. We don't see politics in our everyday lives, right? Um, But I think they say that 0.0001% of people that are crazy, they make a lot of noise. They're able to mobilize very, very quickly. And before you know it, there's picket signs outside. And even if it's just three or four people, it's annoying to them. Can I ask a question? What ethnicity were the people with the picket signs? <laughs> it's that they're usually young, rich, white, wokers, okay? So I think the calculation that they're making is that the 99.9% of people that aren't crazy are going to come to our store regardless. So if we just appease that one that tiny, tiny segment that is crazy, 
They'll leave us alone. Because that's what it is. It's not about selling more product. It's just being like left alone in the press. Right. They, now, they, they are thinking financially, as they should be. They're free market companies. You know, they should be thinking that way. And I think they think, you know, why, why put up with the nuisance? Just give them what they want. And we see this a lot. We see a lot of corporations caving to this kind of stuff. Case in point, just to give a quick example, Starbucks, okay, which is a very well-known company, as everyone knows. Uh, a few years ago, I think it was like maybe a couple years ago, you might remember this. There was a racially charged incident where there were a couple guys in Starbucks who were loitering. They were waiting for somebody. They hadn't ordered anything. And one of the employees went up to the to the two gentlemen and were like, yeah, you guys can't just like sit in here all day. You have to order something. And it, I don't remember how it started, but it turned into these this big racial problem. It was all over the news. Now, Starbucks, in an attempt to virtue signal, did their whole, we're going to close every single store in America. You remember this, oh, yeah, Jay? They did a day of training. Yeah, they did. That. Well, yeah. it, was, it wasn't a day. It was like two hours. Two hours of racial sensitivity training, which is the biggest bunch of bull crap. Because if you're a racist and you work at Starbucks, what is two hours going to do for you? Are you going to start leaving to just go to the record store and buy jazz records all of a sudden? Oh, I'm not racist anymore. It's just stupid. It's absolute idiocy. But I understand why they had, they had the virtue signal. What came later was that there was a petition that was basically saying that Starbucks policy on loitering was racist. Well, because of course everything is racist, right? So they ended up caving to this nonsense and they changed their policy where now no matter who you are, no matter what you want, you could come into Starbucks. You don't have to order anything. You could sit there all goddamn day, no matter how bad you smell and you could use the bathroom and you could do everything you want and they can't kick you out anymore by company policy. Maybe if you live in a rural or suburban area, in Vermont or something, you might not have noticed a difference in your local Starbucks. I've even noticed, you know, my parents live in, in Denver. When I go to Denver, I don't notice much of a difference in the Starbucks. But here in Los Angeles... Not so good in the city. <laughs> I remember when I used to go to the Starbucks in Westwood Village, which is where UCLA is, I used to go there and I used to do my work. And I used to, you know, it was, it was very scholastic sort of environment. All the kids with their laptops and they're drinking their little coffee and you feel like inspired, Right. Go to a Starbucks now in Los Angeles. It is overrun with vagrants. So what I'm saying here is that when you give when a corporation gives into this sort of nonsense, what ends up happening is, as we've said a million times, leftism eats itself. Once you get in league with the woke crowd. They expect you to keep doing it over and, and there's no end. In fact, the end point will eventually come when when the woke crowd will say Starbucks itself is racist and therefore we need to close half your locations because, you know, that's where it ends up going. It will never be enough. So corporation, you know, and, and just to go back to the to the Starbucks in L.A., you know, I see I see it now. People go I go in to get my Starbucks if I need a coffee, which I'm, I tend to make my coffee at home nowadays. But if I'm desperate and I'm not going to sit in there because I don't want to sit next to a guy who hasn't showered in 50 yeah, days. I don't even want to stand in there. Right. I mean, no offense to to homeless people. I feel bad for them. But when I'm drinking coffee, I don't want to smell somebody who hasn't showered. I don't want to use their bathroom because their bathrooms are filthy. And and frankly, if I wouldn't want to be a, an employee at Starbucks because they have to deal with a lot of harassment from people who are mentally ill. So this is a, an example of how companies 
think they're making the right decision and they're not. You know, it, this is not a good thing to involve yourself with if you if you own a company. The best thing to do is say no. I'm set the ground the ground rules early on. I'm not. We are not going to do that. Then they'll. I think they'll they'll stop coming after you. They might. You might have to deal with a month or two of picketing. But after that, they'll realize you're not going to cave. Now. I was expecting Trader Joe's to cave to this, and I was very, very surprised when Trader Joe's released a press statement, and it went as follows. A few weeks ago, an online petition was launched calling on us to remove racist packaging from our products. Following were inaccurate reports that the petition prompted us to take action. We want to be clear. We disagree that any of these labels are racist. We do not make decisions based on petitions. Slow clap for uh, Trader Joe's, right? Decades ago, our buying team started using product names like Trader Giotto's, Trader Jose's, Trader Ming's, etc. We thought then, and still do, that this naming of products could be fun and show appreciation for other cultures. For example, we named our Mexican beer Trader Jose Premium, and a couple guacamole products are called Avocado's Number, in a kitschy reference to a mathematical theory. These products have been really popular with our customers, including some budding mathematicians. Recently, we have heard from many customers reaffirming that these name variations are largely viewed in exactly the same way they were intended, as an attempt to have fun with our product marketing. We continue our ongoing evaluation, and those products that resonate with our customers and sell well will remain on our shelves. Trader Joe's has been a unique, fun, and neighborly place to shop for over 50 years. We look forward to taking care of our wonderful customers for many future decades. Trader Joe's. Again, slow clap, Jay. So good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so basically what that uh, that letter is saying is let the adults take it from here. And this brings up another point that I hate in today's politics. Jeez. I, I, there's a lot that I despise, but, but, but this I truly despise, I, you know. And it's it's when we involve young, you know, this this letter was written by a high school student. So I'm assuming somebody under 18. Okay, when you let people who are under 18 take the reins, it never turns out well. And I know this is an unpopular opinion, especially on the left. We're supposed to listen to the children. But guess what? I have two children. You know that, Jay? Yeah. My daughter is eight. My son is six and a half. They are both very, very smart. My son especially is like above average for his age, right? But even smart kids are idiots, okay? We've been house hunting. We've seen maybe a dozen houses. And every time we walk into a house, they go, we should buy this one. This the one and yeah. I'm, uh, uh, yeah, I'm always like, I appreciate your opinion, guys, but I'm going <laughs> to make no the thanks. decision from here, right? Because I don't let my kids enact policy in my house. If I did, their policy would be to just eat candy, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, okay? We don't do that. I make the policy in my house. And I think that should be the way it is when you're, for anyone who's under 18, including, and I'm going to say something controversial here, Jay, so give me my controversial music. Here it comes. Including the Parkland survivors. These were kids who were under 18. They went through a traumatic, traumatic experience. But I was very, very turned off to them suddenly becoming political activists and people on both sides, frankly, using them as props. It's exploitative of children. I don't like it. Now, that doesn't mean we can't talk to them. We can't sympathize with them. We can't comfort them. We should comfort them. You should comfort your children when they're in pain. But I don't care, frankly, what a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old has to say about policy. 
because they don't know anything about the world. Even no, they if they're really change smart. their mind in three, three minutes. Right. Some of these kids ended up going to Ivy League schools. So even so they're clearly very smart. Some of them are full on adult now political activists. Great. Give me your opinion. But when you were in high school, just because you went through a traumatic experience doesn't make you qualified to dictate policy. And, you know, this is not just a left wing thing. The right does this too. You, I've seen a lot of videos of people putting their kids out on the street and collecting change at groceries stores to build trump's wall like a, a eight-year-old kid like try to explain to an eight-year-old what sovereignty means i mean they don't understand these are complex issues including government policy even when you're 17 years old you're not mature enough to understand this stuff the bottom line is keep the kids out of it when you get when companies get letters that are trying to bully them into submission to do these kind of things. It is best to take the Trader Joe's approach here, which is to say, thank you. We will take it from here. We know our, our, our customer base. We are not going to cave to this. And that concludes Riz's rant. Okay. So, uh, Jay, the segments keep on coming, right? What segment we got next? Moving right along, we got We Care A Lot, and we do. Okay, so we haven't expanded. You want to remind our listeners what We Care A Lot is about? We Care A Lot is about you, the listener, because it's true. We care a lot about you. We care a lot about what you have to say. When you engage us on, on whether it's on Discord or on our website or you send uh, messages to us on socials, we want to address them. We want to talk about them. This is a place for conversation, and our conversation is going to be with you as much as it's going to be with people that we interview, as much as it's going to be between us. So this is a place where we can talk about the things that you want to know about. Right, and we got uh, uh, an above-average amount of um, listener feedback. We certainly did. People are active on the Discord. Right. In fact, we got. We, I think there's one question we said we couldn't even get to today. It's just That's too true. much. That's true. So, so we will take that one next week. Conservative Karen. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, what was the first question, Jay? Or is it a question? Is it a comment? What is it? It's more of a comment and then a, and then in the form of a question. I don't know. He was confused. <laughs> it's a question wrapped in yeah, a comment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah. for me, Riz. I, got, I finally got one. You did? I thought these were all going to be to me. Well, the, right. the other ones are. But this one's for me. I'm very excited about it. Hit me with it. Of course, being you know the, uh, the resident theologian on the show, I was going to get this one after we did our episode on socialism. It was just, it was bound to happen. If you haven't listened, you should go back and listen. We did an episode where we touched about so, on socialism and we had a great guest, Paul Angelo, who discussed, he is a, a self, self-affirmed self socialist and uh, we had a great discussion with him. It was him. a lot of fun. So here's the uh, comment from Anonymous Socialist. Great handle. Uh, great handle. If socialism is so bad, why was Jesus a socialist? Address on your pod, please. Ooh, that's a good one for you, Jay. Go ahead. Hit me. So here's the deal. Jesus is not a socialist. No? He's not. But he's got long hair and everything. Don't let the sandals fool you. <laughs> Jesus, he told us to give freely and be charitable of our own volition and to be charitable personally. It doesn't sound like a socialist. A socialist would say to do it collectively, forcefully, through a governmental system. Uh, Matt Walsh spoke in length about this, and he had a lot of great things to say. But any passage where Jesus is talking about helping the poor, there's a lot in Matthew, some in Luke, there is no mention of laws or policies or systems. You'll find instructions directed right at you as an individual uh, to do this by your own volition, of your own free will, with your own money, and minister to the less fortunate personally. It comes from a call to love people. Through that love, you meet needs personally. It doesn't mean to meet needs as a government organization because a government organization cannot give love. 
It can only give bureaucratically. Jesus spoke about creating wealth and working hard as a virtue. And of course, we have the fourth commandment, which is the requirement of work. This is speaking to capitalism, not socialism. Uh, Jesus also famously said, uh, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. This speaks to property rights. It's a powerful endorsement of property rights. He didn't say this thing belongs to Caesar if Caesar says it uh, belongs to Caesar. He said, give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. He's speaking about property rights there. So I think that that's all the evidence you could possibly need. Jesus is not a socialist. I've seen bumper stickers that say Jesus oh, it's, was it's a everywhere. socialist. It's, it's a thing that the left says all the time. Uh, you know, no, Jesus was not a socialist. Um, I think he would argue with you if he were here. I think he would as well. Yeah. Not a Bernie bro. Not a Bernie bro. <laughs> okay. All right. Now we got all, all the other questions are for you. Oh, okay. Okay. So we got a, uh, a question from or a suggestion from one of our listeners that went as follows. Please explain how discrimination against white Christians is not systemic, considering the attempts of the far left to remove God from the public square and dismantle the nuclear family. These are dangerous real threats to a society desiring to move forward in virtuous true freedom. All faiths and those with no faith ought to be welcome. And we need to uphold the nuclear family because, as the data shows, it's the best shield against poverty, crime, and obesity, while providing the best chance of success for our children. Okay, now everyone who's standing around Riz, take one giant step back. (laughs) No, I mean, here's the thing. We're going to unpack this a little bit. So first part, please please explain how discrimination against white Christians is not systemic, considering the attempts of the far left to remove God from the public square. Okay, let's just go over that. Now, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The two parts, known as the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, respectively, form the textual basis for the Supreme Court's interpretations of the separation of church and state doctrine. Three central concepts were derived from the First Amendment, which became America's doctrine for church-state separation. Number one, no coercion in religious matters. Number two, no expectation to support a religion against one's will. And number three, religious liberty encompasses all religions. In sum, citizens are free to embrace or reject a faith, and support for religion, physical or financial, must be voluntary. And all religions are equal in the eyes of the law with no special preference or favoritism. So separation of church and state. The founders were very, very clear on this. They put it in the First Amendment, okay? Now, the idea that liberals are trying to remove Christianity or, or those kind of values from the public square is very odd to me because, first of all, I think there's, there's, there's a certain number of people on the conservative right who sort of want to gloss over the separation of church and state. They're always talking about how we need to bring God back into our lives. But that is supposed to be a free enterprise, isn't it, Jay? It's not supposed to be in the public square. There's a distinction to make here. Okay. That distinction is in separating the the government within the government from, you know, the public square. What happens, let's take the media, for example, right? If you bring uh, a Christian who's talking about God onto CNN, right? Yeah. They are, whether they're ridiculed or dismissed for those beliefs, 
I think that's more what this is talking. Yeah, but to. I, I just don't think that's happening, and I'll, and I'll get to that in a second. You know, I want to give an example first. Like, for instance, okay. so so what I am saying basically is that I actually want less religion in the public square because it's the public square by virtue. I thought that I think that the founders, in their infinite wisdom, knew that this would be a problem, and therefore set it out in. The First Amendment, okay? But to give an example, I live in Los Angeles. My kids go to public school in West Los Angeles, which I have to assume is probably- Not at the moment. <laughs> not at the moment, but uh, let, let's assume COVID didn't exist, okay? They go to school in probably one of the most, most liberal environments in the country, I would, I would assume, right? Being the fact that they're in Los Angeles and they're in West LA and they're among other white rich kids, right? Mm-hmm. Every single- Holiday season, they do their Christmas show, the you know, the holiday Christmas show. And it's great. We all dress up. We go to the auditorium and they usually do like 10 songs. Right. And eight of those 10 songs are Christmas songs. And Christmas is a religious holiday. OK, it, it, it is an American holiday, but it is also celebrating the birth of Christ. It's a very religious holiday. They do one song about Hanukkah, which Hanukkah is not a religious holiday. Hanukkah, Hanukkah, Harry, Hanukkah, Harry. Yeah. And then they usually do a song about Kwanzaa, you know, for the one kid in school who, who represents Kwanzaa. And I know you said I know the listener who 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 asked this Hanukkah question is not a religious holiday. <laughs> it's all about presents to you. It's not about the it's oil that was mar- miraculous. Presents. Yeah, no, <laughs> okay. now, I know that the the person who 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 submitted this this question said all faiths are, are welcome, and I appreciate that. But when I'm when I am at my kids' liberal public education school and listening to them singing songs about Christmas, I always question myself, why is this in their public education? What I'm getting at here is that it's odd that this is such a complaint from religious people, from that we're, we're eliminating too much religion from our public square, yet I actually, I, I don't see evidence of that at all. I think people are just as religious. You know, do you have anything to add to that? And then I'll, then I'll go on and say one more thing here. No, I, I mean, I, I'm with that. I understand, uh, you know, public school is a governmental organization. There's a separation of church and state. Um, and I, I do, as we've talked about before, you can't deny that our country was founded on Judeo-Christian ideals, but there there was that caveat very firmly placed uh, into our governmental system. Exactly. So, uh, I hear you. Now, what I think this listener might be referring to is, and this is more right-wing hyperbole, um, it's just going to be a lot of that in this episode, but the so-called war on Christmas. If you're into politics, you've heard this before. Barack Obama- Speaking of Starbucks. But, yeah, right. Barack Obama started a war on Christmas, and all the corporations have fallen into it. You can't say Merry Christmas anymore, God damn it. You know, or damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you say that you're going to be ostracized, you're going to be made fun of, you're going to they're going to they're going to, you know, just beat you on the street. You just you can't do it because we, we you know, we don't allow what was that the quote enough. this week. Yeah. What was it? Wait, what was the exact quote? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, Joe, Joe Biden. He wants to hurt God. Yes, he wants yeah, to hurt right. God. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Joe Biden is running for president just to hurt God. Uh, that, that's what I think. But anyway, uh, what I was going to give just a little personal antidote. My wife. Uh, grew up in New York in a very, very non-religious family. Her, it, it, about as as close as you could possibly get to agnostic slash atheist. I mean, her family, I think, I believe both her parents sort of fall in the category of they went, they were raised in Catholic school and they sort of rebelled against it and they just decided we are not raising our kids with any semblance of religion. My wife has never been to church once in her life. She never knew she was Christian even. They didn't even talk about that. She's technically Catholic, but she had no idea. And by the way, sidebar, I would say that this, 
I'm not anti-religion, but I would say that my wife is a very good example for why you don't need religion to be a good person because I would challenge anyone to find a better person like I'm a more well-adjusted person than my wife. I mean, she is literally a person who lives regret-free without any semblance of jealousy or envy or any of negative human emotions. She's just, I've never met anyone like her and she's been like that for 20 years and she did it all without God. So there you go. Very sweet, Rose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, those are just brownie points. So you could confirm that, right, Jay? Oh, uh, without a doubt. Yes. Um, but needless to say, whenever she has three sisters, and whenever we we all get together, we all say Merry Christmas because Christmas to us and to her and to her family is an American holiday. My kids celebrate Christmas. There's no God in it. There's no Jesus in it. We don't talk about that. It is literally just about Santa Claus. It's brought to you guys by Hallmark. <laughs> exactly. But this idea, again, this is another, this goes back to another right-wing media manufactured talking point that if you elect Democrats, they hate God. I just, the bottom line in summation to this whole thing, I do not see God, a left-wing movement to remove God from the public square any more than there has been in the last, in, in, in my, my entire life. In fact, I remember my mother being upset with my school when I was a kid because we were singing Away in a Manger at the holiday, you know. And, I bet you, I bet you would yeah, be upset she, about that. I remember her just saying, just mother. being like, why are they singing religious songs, separation of church and state? Now, I want to continue on to the second part of the question, which is um, the idea of dismantling the nuclear family. Now, I want to first define nuclear family. A nuclear family is a family group consisting of two parents and their children. It is in contrast to a single parent family or a family with more than two parents. So all a nuclear family is, is a family. Hang on, hang on. A family with more than two parents? Yeah, yeah. Is that a a thing? It's in contrast to a single parent family or a family with more than two parents, meaning nowadays there could be eight parents. Who knows? You know, or maybe it's a grandparents. But all all a nuclear family. needs to calm down. Right. (laughs) All a nuclear family is is a family with two parents, okay? It has nothing to do with the sexual orientation of the married couple. And I would actually make the argument that the push from the left to allow same-sex couples the right to marry was a direct attempt to preserve the nuclear family, not to dismantle it. Studies have shown that having two parent, a two-parent household has a significant benefit to the child. We could all agree to that. Having two parents is better than having one. It's certainly better than having none, okay? And even, but, you know, even with that said, even more studies show that kids raised in same-sex families are not impacted negatively. I would challenge anyone who's listening to the show to find me a study that, that shows the contrary. I have a feeling my wife will be emailing you. (laughs) So when you talk about, quote, dismantling of the nuclear family, I think, again, this is classic right-wing hyperbole and conflation. The hyperbole part is in the fact that, again, I know a ton of liberals and cannot think of one who has expressed an outright disdain for the nuclear family. Jay, you and I, we have the same circle of friends. You are our, you are our, our resident conservative. All of our, the rest of our friends are leftists, right? You agree yep, to this? Absolutely. I agree Almost all of them are married, right? It's simply not a thing that exists. This, I have not heard one of my liberal friends ever say like, man, we got to get rid of this nuclear family. That's what's killing us. Like no one is thinking like that. Nobody except the right wing media that's trying to convince you that they're thinking this way. Now, the conflation part is, again, classic conservative sleight of hand. You'll use you'll hear me use that term a lot. OK, it is conflating 
reverence for single parenthood, which, you know, a single mother, for instance, who is able to do it all, you know, hold down a job and raise her kids simultaneously by herself, which is a very impressive thing. It's conflating that with an overall opinion that the nuclear family no longer serves a useful purpose. In other words, Jay, two things could be true at once. True thing number one, single mothers who make it all happen, or single fathers for that matter, who make it all happen, are awesome. They do a really hard job. They deserve to be commended. True thing number two, having two parents raising children is the desired arrangement for the benefit of children and for society. The bottom line here is that I do not think there is a left-wing movement to break down the framework of the nuclear family just because they don't chastise those who are raising their kids alone. Now. I just want to say one more thing. This is the same thing that the right does with Colin Kaepernick. You know, if the left supports his right to Colin Kaepernick's right to kneel in protest for the national anthem, that means that we hate America. When most of us on the left, I believe, both support his right to kneel in protest for the national anthem and love America and wouldn't ourselves kneel for the national anthem. I would never kneel for the national anthem. I support Colin and 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 his right to do so, I think it's it, it, he could do whatever he wants. I don't think he's a bad person because he's doing it. I understand why he's doing it. I just personally don't do that. So it's it's the same kind of principle, right? Now this would also be a good time. Uh, this is a little bit off topic, but it's also a good time to once again bring up societal inequities that have resulted from bad government policy. For instance, the war on drugs. You've probably heard of the war on drugs. It was started by George H. W. Bush. It was continued by. Bill Clinton. Uh, most Americans at this point on both sides of the political aisle believe that the war on drugs was extraordinarily a net negative for society. It disproportionately imprisoned tens of thousands of black men, uh, in a lot of cases for very low level drug crimes. And I believe it's sort of artificially manufactured a breakdown of that nuclear family in mostly communities of color and low-income communities. The point I'm making here is that this is where my libertarian comes in. A lot of times, the government... Now, what, what is sort of the slogan of libertarianism? Big government sucks. Government always sucks at everything. Okay, that is the libertarian ethos. Government sucks at everything, right? I thought it was, I don't want to wear my seatbelt. Yeah, it's that too, yeah. That's a little down on the charter. The, 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 charter re the first thing on the charter is government sucks at everything. And I don't necessarily disagree. The war on drugs is a perfect example of this. When they will try to, it, it basically, we have this problem with drugs. There are too many people addicted to drugs. It's scaring all the people. It's scaring all the citizens who aren't drug addicts. So we need to arrest all these people and put them in jail for 10 years while an entire generation of mostly minority little kids grow up without fathers. So government oftentimes in an effort to ameliorate or make better a situation actually makes it worse. And that is an example of when they made it worse. So again, I don't think there's a left-wing movement to dismantle the nuclear family. I think bad government policies have helped to dismantle the nuclear family. And that's what we need to talk about more. I think that's really, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I don't think, I, I have not heard that um, a great deal, that opinion. And that's something that should be studied. Thank you, Jay. I'm glad you, all these are basically turning into rants for me. <laughs> The only thing I would have I would add to the uh, the first part of of your comment on the comment is I, I do think that there is an agenda that pushes the whole I don't believe in God I believe in science is the only kind of sound judgment mm -hmm. 
Um, and I don't understand why there's not an agenda that considers all possibilities and at the least allows for the free speech and open ears, doesn't discredit someone based on their beliefs. But I think there is that system already in place. I like to believe that there, I would like to believe that there's that system, but the media, when they, when they talk about, and certain subsets of the media, when they talk about people that believe in God or, you know, whether that's Muslim or Christian or whatever it is, they speak about them in a discrediting nature where their, their opinion is less valued because they don't believe in science, for example. Um, and I found that that's pervasive. Yeah. And, and by the way, and again, this is maybe a little bit off topic, <laughs> but since I mentioned libertarianism and government sucking at everything, I just want to give it one more little personal uh, quip here. Uh, my kids who, like I just said, go to public school in Los Angeles, they are supposed to go back to school next week. Um, obviously it's not happening as you might've heard in Los Angeles due to COVID, but you would think by now, um, it's what Monday we would have received some kind of notification of what's happening. You're kidding. Nothing. And wow. this is a perfect example for all those listeners out there. I didn't expect anything. You know why I didn't expect anything? Because government sucks at everything. Right. And that's what you would expect from a public school. There's too many people. They don't they aren't guided by profits. We have friends who have kids in in private school. They have their together because they have to because people are paying for it so expect a certain amount of service right exactly when you are guided by profits you get more done yay capitalism Uh, the reason government agencies behave like this is because they're really not accountable to anyone except at the at at the voting booth and everything is so partisan now that democrats vote for democrats republicans vote for republicans and that's just the way it is but a, a, a free market enterprise is accountable to the people who are paying them again this was sort of off topic but i just wanted to throw in again why capitalism is so awesome more evidence yes more evidence okay and why the government does generally suck at a lot of things anyway let's go on i think we have one more right jay we do have one more uh and this was uh by your favorite uh discord commenter liberal tier drinker oh i love the liberal tier in fact i even have i even have a ben shapiro liberal really? tears hot or cold tumbler yes I have two of them. I got it at a show for Michael Knowles. That is amazing. And, that I went to see, and it's 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 in my in, in my attic at this point. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, hit me. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. From liberal tier drinker. Listen to your interview with Paul, and was surprised that neither of you, Paul, are resident socialist. Oh, the guy we had on the show last week who gave. Yes. Yeah, that, oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Sorry. Paul Start from again. last week. Yeah. Uh, listened to your interview with Paul from last week and was surprised that neither of you mentioned where investment capital comes from to start small businesses. The answer, of course, is from wealthy people. If they are being taxed at exorbitant rates, then there is less incentive and less capital to invest in other people's ideas. What this will lead to eventually is government ownership of all of the means of production and no more small businesses. Small business is able to realize their vision directly because of a thriving capitalistic system that incentivizes investors to contribute. Okay, I'm going to give another little slow clap there. I agree with this one. I don't have much. I think this liberal tear drinker, you are exactly correct. Uh, There may be some shades of gray. But uh, just again, to give a little personal quip, my wife started her business uh, with a $30,000 investment from her partner's family. Um, Now, that doesn't sound like a lot of money when you have people who invest millions of dollars now that we hear about. But 
how many people do you know personally that have $30,000 in liquid cash? Probably not that many. This is exactly why we need wealthy people to invest. You know, my wife and her partner at that point had no business experience. They could have, ne- they had no collateral. They couldn't have gone to a bank. They couldn't have gone to the Small Business Association and gotten a loan. They needed to have somebody in that was a family member that believed in them. And by the way, they paid back the loan within a couple years with interest. So the investor in the family uh, made money off of it. And that's a great thing. That's all part of the capitalistic system. We need people in this country to contribute to small businesses because they believe in the product or they believe in the people who are running the businesses. And capitalism allows that. And if we do tax these people too high, I absolutely agree that their incentive to invest is, is lessened. But, you know, keeping within the spirit of the show, I do think it's important to get our resident socialist, Paul, who we interviewed last week, his opinion. So we sent him this question and asked him to respond because, you know, actually, when I was listening to the interview, I I was wishing that we had brought this up. We didn't really talk about investment. So this was a great opportunity to address it with him. And uh, I think he responded. What is it? What do you have to say about it, Jay? So his response was uh, he did bring this point up. And I think it was like once in the two hour conversation that we had. But basically, his he states uh, between 1940 and 1944, the top marginal tax rate in the United States was 100 percent in order to help pay for World War Two. The top rate fluctuated between 91 percent and 92 percent between 1944 and 1963. And from 1964 to 1981, the top rate ranged between 77% and 70%. Those rates seem very high compared to the 35% top rate of today, and I suppose they are, but would anyone ever claim that there, were, that there was a lack of innovation, ingenuity, and a desire to grow businesses between 1940 and 1981? For that matter, does anyone think there were no filthy rich yacht riding, champagne popping masters of the universe during that time? Of course there were. And he gave us a list of American inventions and innovations that come along uh, that came about during this age of taxing, as he says, the crap out of the rich. Um, it is a very long list. On that yep. list, give, is, us, give uh, us some highlights: color television, uh, silly putty, the uh, the this the slinky, a microwave oven, the transistor, uh, the Wurlitzer jukebox, the compact disc, Kevlar armor, VCRs, and the IBM uh, personal computer. There's a ton more, and maybe we'll post them on the blog for everyone to see. Right. But uh, essentially, he says, uh, in closing, all this innovation, invention, and entrepreneurship took place when income taxes were no lower than 70% in the top bracket. There was no lack of that good old American ingenuity, and even better, the middle class flourished, had steady jobs, owned homes without the two and three mortgages families have today, had some savings in the bank rather than the debt that average families have today. And guess what? There were still rich people, lots and lots of rich people, and they didn't hunker down and stop growing business and being innovative, even when taxes on their top earnings were over 90%. And that's what Paul had to say. Yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, you know, I want to, uh, this is not really my forte. Um, I, I could sort of deal, I, I know the the higher ideological stuff that I believe in and a lot of the anecdotal things that I've heard. I'm not an economist, I admit that. And so one of the things Jay and I want to do is have an economist on. And I would love to bring Paul's argument back up and get a, get a, an actual economist rebuttal to that or see if maybe they agree at some level. You know, there are liberal economists, there are conservative economists. Um, but this, I think that's a great, it's a great place to leave it because we could leave it with you guys to sort of do research on it or figure out how you feel about it. Yep, I agree. And uh, we'll look forward to having that economist on. Absolutely. Okay, so before we move on to our next segment, which is a new segment, by the way, I want to uh, to, to present something here. Um, 
some people have said to us, you know, what is the goal of the Down the Middle podcast? Is there an end game here? Uh, while, we, while we still feel uh, as though we're in, the, in our infancy of the idea here, I think we both can agree, Jay and I both can agree, that if and when this venture grows organically, our eventual goal is to create a fully functioning media company that would not just engage in politics, but like any other media corporation, would engage in culture and music and sports and art and general news and entertainment and everything else. Now, what would set our venture apart from all the rest is the idea that our mission statement would be to become the first ever truly all-partisan media company. All-partisan, and that is trademarked, so don't try to nick it, because we will sue you in court. Go system. So all-partisan is a term that we have coined that we believe encompasses all the reasons we wanted to start this podcast in the first place. And it could be summed up by the idea of giving the general public all of the viewpoints from every point in the spectrum and entrust the public with the responsibility to make up their own minds about what they believe. We're looking at you, Teen Vogue. Exactly. Rather than having it spoon-fed to them. You know, we believe that the American public, by and large, are smart enough to make up their own minds. They don't need to be told what to believe. And that's what we want to do. We want to present every side so you can make up your mind. Now, a big question that I've thought about a lot in respect to this idea is where do we draw the line when it comes to other people's opinions? For instance, you may be of the opinion that Donald Trump has been the greatest president in American history for the black community. Better even than Lincoln, right? (laughs) And Jay and I may disagree with you, but still feel as though that is an opinion that deserves a voice and deserves critique and discussion and discourse. On the other hand, you may be a person who is of the opinion that Barack Obama was a Muslim. And while it's a free country and you have every right to have that opinion, because it is not rooted in fact, that opinion is likely something we wouldn't give voice to on our network. Now, to not be one-sided here and give a left-wing example, many of my friends on the left truly believe that the events of 9-11 were a false flag and that they were not planned and coordinated by radical Islamic terrorists, but instead by our own government. I know that sounds crazy, but there is a lot of mainstream liberals who believe this kind of thing, okay? And while you are perfectly within your right to have this opinion, because it is not rooted in fact and is only rooted in sort of YouTube-style conspiracy videos, we would not give voice to this opinion on our network. I should also say that facts are facts, of course, but without context, facts can often be misleading. So one thing our network would attempt to do is always provide all of the context around the facts in a continued effort to be all partisan. For instance, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Los Angeles County has the highest number of confirmed COVID cases. However, LA County is the largest county in the country by far. That's the context that one needs in order to understand the full scope of the information. So with that said, Civil rights icon John Lewis died last month on July 17th. Now, John Lewis was an American hero who was nearly beaten to death supporting what he believed in. We're not going to go into his entire history and background. If you don't know much about John Lewis, Google him. His funeral was held in Atlanta on July 30th. While President Trump was remarkably absent from the service, Presidents Bush, Clinton, and Obama all gave speeches to honor the late John Lewis. President Obama's speech, as usual, was extraordinarily moving to me, okay? And I thought everything he said was spot on. Uh, Obama, he has 
what I would call the political it factor. You can't even put your finger on it. It just he's it, the way he orates is just something about it that moves me. I'm only speaking for myself. Uh, the next day, the 31st, I was listening to Ben Shapiro's podcast. You've heard us mention Ben Shapiro a lot. Uh, he is one of our favorite conservative commentators. He is one of the largest conservative commentators. I listen to him all the time because I think he's really smart. Uh, he spent the first half of his podcast critiquing Obama's speech at the memorial and also Obama himself as a politician and a man in general. I found myself repeatedly, repeatedly having to pick my jaw up from the floor because while I have a lot of respect for Shapiro as a historian and as a commentator of American values and ideals, I was absolutely floored about how two reasonably intelligent human beings could listen to the same speech and come away with such a different impression of it. With that said, this is a perfect example of the kind of opinion that we would give voice to on our network. Shapiro wasn't saying anything factually inaccurate. He was simply giving his opinion on something that I happen to have a completely different opinion on. That is not a bad thing for all you crazy liberals out there, okay? Diversity of thought. This is what America is all about, people being able to discuss their different opinions and give measured, reasonable explanations for why they feel the way they do. So Jay and I thought that it would be really kind of cool, since we're not yet at the level where we could get Ben Shapiro on our show, if we sort of had a virtual debate with him. So without further ado, here is our new segment. It's called Virtually Debatable. Virtually Debatable. So uh, what we're going to do in this segment is we're going to play you some segments from Ben Shapiro's podcast and what he had to say about Barack Obama's speech to John Lewis. Maybe this is a good time to pause and listen to the speech uh, if you haven't. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's all over the place. And then come back to this. Um, the first thing Ben Shapiro said, this is sort of to intro it. The first thing he did was was elaborate on what he thought politicians should or should not do at a person's funeral. And this is what that sounded like. Well, there's one general rule when somebody who is prominent dies, and that is you kind of hold your fire, at least for, you know, the next 30 seconds. And typically you don't use their memorials, particularly if they are very large figures. You don't use their memorials as sort of launching points for politics. This has been a rule that I, I would say Republicans have been better at applying than Democrats in the recent past. Whenever a, a major Democrat dies or whenever there's a bad event uh, that, that results in death and, and the Democrat speaks at the memorial, it very often turns into a political rally. So it's nothing new that that's what happened yesterday with regard to the memorial for Congressman John Lewis. Perhaps I would agree with this assessment if John Lewis wasn't such a politically significant force. Now, Lewis was a very, very partisan Democrat. And just as Republicans did at Ronald Reagan's memorial, I don't see anything tacky about bringing politics into the memorial of a man who would have wanted his legacy to be memorialized via politics. Uh, it would have been inappropriate to just get up there and talk about his civil rights achievements without going into the legacy of the second half of his life, which is the political issues he fought for. Do you, uh, what do you think, Jay? I think also, considering the context of the time, um, and we have such racially charged issues, uh, being discussed, that it was on point for the man and for the time. Uh, he went out fighting for these ideals that he fought so hard for as a, a governmental icon. I definitely hear what you're saying. Look, I, I, you know, Trump politicized the thing by not showing up. Right. 
Ben's assessment that this doesn't happen on the right is obviously not entirely accurate no. because it did happen during this funeral as mm -hmm. well in, in that format. Right. Uh, I, I think he mentioned it. I think he would have loved for Obama to get up there and give uh, the speech that W gave, which was just, you know, very happy-go-lucky. He's a painter now. You know, right. he doesn't yeah. have to be political. Mm -hmm. But Obama is in the middle of a race, and he's running. He's essentially running with Biden. Um, you know, he's supporting him a great deal, and and uh, he has something to say about it. There's so that, that's... and there's also the fact that Obama was closer with John Lewis than George Bush sure. was. I mean, Obama was a personal friend of Lewis. I think he is in... He knows more about what Lewis would have wanted him to say at his funeral than Ben Shapiro or George Bush knows. I agree with so that. So that's what I would say. So Shapiro then went on to get more into the into the weeds here about Obama as a man, and he pontificated a little bit about how he thinks we got Trump. Okay, and it sounded like this. But the real politicization was reserved for Barack Obama, who got extraordinarily political. And it is a reminder of why Donald Trump is president. Because... Barack Obama is a much more elegant speaker. He's a much more subtle person than Donald Trump. Donald Trump is just the very loud, and he, he's the checkered suit version of Barack Obama. Right? Barack Obama was a used car salesman in a really nice suit, and Donald Trump is a used car salesman in a, in a checkered plaid suit. That, that is the main difference between them, because Barack Obama is purely political. He is a political animal. He will say purely, openly political things that are bizarre and, and over the top and really kind of crazy. And he'll do it at a memorial service. And then the media will praise him as a statesman. And Donald Trump is like, okay, just get rid of the statesman and I'll just say all this stuff out loud. And I'll say the quiet part out loud. The truth is that Barack Obama got all the plaudits for being a, a master of subtlety. He never was particularly subtle, right? He was, he's more subtle than Trump, but that's because literally all the things are more subtle than Trump. All Trump is, is you, you strip off the veneer of Barack Obama and the political, the overt politicization of all the things. Okay. Before we get to the things that he actually said, to compare Obama to Trump is so incredibly insane to me. And then to say that Obama's political style, if you will, is the reason we got Trump is even crazier. Barack Obama was a constitutional law professor who was an intellectual history scholar. Donald Trump, by Shapiro's own admission, doesn't know anything. Uh, Shapiro himself has called him an idiot, as have most right-wing commentators outside of, like, the Sean Hannity's of the world. Now, I hate race-baiting. I've said that a million times on this show. If, if I were in charge, I would call a moratorium on the word racist for the Democratic Party for the next 12 to 13 years. But the notion that Donald Trump is just Barack Obama in a checkered suit kind of, sort of, goes to the underlying racism, racism that still exists in this country. Both Trump and Obama may very well be political animals, but one of them is presenting facts as much as you may not like them in an intelligent way, and the other is being overtly divisive without any of the intelligence. So to compare the two is, it's apples and oranges. Look, I think what he's trying to say here is that they're both polarizing politically, I can't imagine. Ben, he's just too smart to, to not recognize the differences between these two people. Right. Obama is an educated man who understands why the policies he's enacting are happening and why he does them. Trump takes the right wing and he enacts it because it's the right wing. Now, that's really where they differ. They're both, they both come from paralyzing ideologies, and I have to believe that that's what Ben is speaking to. But, you know, we've heard Donald Trump rip this country, country apart. Where we have heard Obama, where when he was president, I do believe he was very polarizing in, in his um, politicking and his enacting of certain um, policies. Legislation. Yeah, legislation. But we have since really see him try to heal this country.
Yeah, and it's not just that. I would also say that Barack Obama start did start his term as a uniter. He wanted to do that, but got so much obstruction by the Republicans. Um, who and Mitch McConnell didn't even make any apologies for this. He came out and said, "We are going to obstruct everything because we want him to be a, a one-term president." I think by the time Obama got to his second term, he had no choice but to say, "I have to use executive. I'm not get. I'm not going out of here without getting anything accomplished." And so, if they won't work with me, I'm going to do it myself. I think. I think that's you know that was part of politics but we'll allow Shapiro to continue he goes a little more into who he thinks Obama is I think it's it's pretty extreme but let's listen to what he has to say Barack Obama was a demagogue and never never forget that Barack Obama was a demagogue I know that we're supposed to pretend that Donald Trump is the first demagogue in American history I know we're supposed to pretend that all of political time space began with the big bang that was Donald Trump it is not true Donald Trump was a direct response to the to the malicious manipulation of Barack Obama Barack Obama was a terrible president. He was a terrible, divisive president, and the media gaslit you about that. The media pretended that he was a unifying force. The media would cherry-pick his speeches. The parts where he would talk about, we're not a red, red America, we're blue America, we're United States of America. And then they'd ignore all the crap where he suggested that we absolutely were not united, that racism is in America's DNA. Now, this is about as much right-wing spin, spin as I could possibly handle. Talk about cherry-picking. You know, first off, what is a demagogue? Let's define it, okay? A demagogue is a political leader who seeks support by appealing to the desires and prejudices of ordinary people rather than by using rational argument. So what Shapiro is saying is that Obama elaborating on the fact that America has racism in its DNA as part of his overall political agenda is not a rational argument. In other words, he's a demagogue because he's just telling the left what they want to hear and not what the truth is. Um, Anyone who doesn't agree at this point that racism was and still is part of the American DNA is doing something wrong. Okay, you're doing it wrong. And this continuing right wing notion that the media went out of their way to carry water for the guy is utter nonsense. I guess that's why they spent two years berating him over his, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor, Gaff. You know, Shapiro says, never forget that Obama was a demagogue. Well, never forget that Barack Obama was an intelligent person who prepared for his press briefings and had an inherent ability to give fact-based answers to questions. Donald Trump doesn't do that, and this is why the media give him so much not just because they don't like him. So that's my take on that. What I said before remains true here. I think he was divisive as a president. I think he abused executive privilege. For whatever reason, I, I agree with you, he did it because he was blocked in Congress, but he still then went around Congress. What we see Trump doing now, it was wrong when he did it. It's wrong now that Trump's doing it. And I think that, you know, again, that's what Ben's speaking to. I just think he's he's really saying it in a, in a, in a very poor way. You know, he's very sensitive to um, the systemic racism exists in America. Uh, I think he's very sensitive to it. Right. Right. Okay. Well, let's let's. Uh, I basically agree with that assessment. And I also agree that that uh, governing by executive order is not what the Constitution was set up for. It's wrong when anyone does it. But let's let's continue here. And here's Barack Obama pretending there's no difference between Bull Connor police officers shooting fire hoses at John Lewis in 1960, and federal officers attempting to fight rioting and looting in America's major cities in 2020, 60 years later. And this is demagoguery of the highest order. Here's Barack Obama being a demagogue. Bull Connor may be gone, but today we witness with our own eyes police officers kneeling on the necks of black Americans. George Wallace may be gone, but we can witness our federal government sending agents to use tear gas and batons against peaceful demonstrators. 
Okay, so apparently Shapiro's definition of demagoguery is when one recites statistically accurate statements in an arena where he feels it's inappropriate to do so. We all agree that excessive use of force by police disproportionately affects communities of color more than it affects white communities. I mean, this is a fact at this point. Everyone knows this, okay? And this is another great example of conservative sleight of hand. What Shapiro is doing here is he is making his listeners believe that Obama is drawing a direct line between, like he said, Bull Connor and race relations of the 60s to George Floyd and saying that things are exactly the same as they were back then. Obama never says this, and it's disingenuous to imply that he says this. He is saying that vestiges of that era still exist. What is a vestige, Jay? A vestige is a trace of something that is disappearing or no longer exists. A trace, meaning at least some of it is still in our society today. He's not saying it's exactly the same. So what is wrong with saying that? Basically, you just don't like that he's calling attention to things you find uncomfortable. I hear that, but I do think there's a better way he could have said that. He he does draw direct comparisons in his verbiage, and he could have softened it. He's a, he's wonderful with words. He's a wordsmith. He could have softened that a little bit and talked about how we have made progress. He made it sound like we haven't made progress, which is just not true. Yeah, I I, I mean he was again trying to prove a point. At the late John Lewis, if you know anything about John Lewis, this is what the guy fought for. I mean, Absolutely. he I just don't think it would have been doing John Lewis justice and his memory justice if he went up there and said, man, we've really come a long, long way. But there are these small little things that have. I mean, I think he needs he he wanted to show that these systemic inequities still do exist, the same ones that existed 60 years ago. I just don't find any problem with that. I, I, I find it bizarre that people like Ben Shapiro are so uh, triggered by that kind of language. It's very interesting to me, but we'll continue. I was going to say, I, I think the comparison was unnecessary. He could have highlighted that fact without making the, the comparison in those exact words. Okay. All right. All right. I'll take your point. Here's the next thing. Okay. Th- this, is, this is such, demog- it, it truly is demagoguery. It, it, it is unrelated to reality. The, even the notion that, that Bull Connor is gone, but Derek Chauvin still exists. There is no evidence at this point that Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck out of racial animus. There isn't. Okay, that evidence may come, but that evidence does not exist. It's, it, there's not a single person who agrees that what Derek Chauvin did was good, decent, justified, or non-jailable. No one. Okay, but Der- to, to draw a direct line between Bull Connor and Derek Chauvin without any evidence whatsoever or to pretend that was commonplace and and not only commonplace, but enshrined in Jim Crow law is similar in any way to what happened with Derek Chauvin is utterly patently crazy. Okay, but Obama gets away with this kind of stuff because the media have decided for years that they are simply going to carry around drool cups for the guy. Okay, again, with the media loves Obama shtick. They, the right loves this one, okay? They, they didn't have to fact check him here because there was nothing to fact check. And even if Devin Chauvin, uh, Derek Chauvin, rather, who was the guy who leaned on the neck of George Floyd, proves to be an incident that wasn't racially motivated, which is very hard to believe at this point that that would happen, uh, those kinds of incidents seem to continually plague communities of color and not white communities. So it's not just the point of racism still existing in elements of law enforcement. It's that even if you take the racism out of the equation, these these incidents are happening more in black and brown communities. Now, what a smart conservative would probably then say is, well, maybe, just maybe, 
it's because black and brown people commit more crimes on a per capita basis. I know that's an unpopular opinion, but statistically it is true. That is statistically true. But it then goes back to our discussion we've had many times now over societal inequities and the fact that the so-called- They're placed in these positions. Right. The fact that the so-called vestiges of Jim Crow are the very thing that is responsible for that phenomenon. You know, poverty breeds criminality. It's just part of it. So- and I, I think that is all Obama was saying. In other words, he wasn't just pointing out racism in policing. He was pointing out societal inequities that continue to plague the black community. Uh, you know who would have agreed with that? John Lewis. You know, now I want to I want to just quickly mention and we'll, we'll come back to this probably in the next week's episode, because uh, given the guest we've booked for next week and we'll keep you guys in suspense about that. But I do absolutely think and this is, again, another opinion that's not shared by some by a lot of my left-wing friends but i do absolutely think that minority communities need to rethink their allegiance to the democratic party i know this is a very unpopular opinion in left-wing circles but i think it's time for them to at least say what the hell have the democrats actually done for us all these years okay but you know that that's a little off topic maybe we'll get to that next week the point is here i don't believe that what shapiro is saying is what Obama was saying. I hear what you're saying. And, you know, knowing the, the, or having an understanding of the character of Barack Obama, I tend to lean that way too. However, the words that came out of his mouth, uh, even with the understanding that, yes, br- police brutality in general affects people of color, he drew a direct comparison and he was putting words in Derek Chauvin's mouth. Whether it was a m- metaphorical take or not, he just wasn't specific about that. Yeah. And that's where Ben's coming from. It's yeah. just, I don't feel bad about putting words in Derek Chauvin's mouth. I mean, you know, the guy killed someone. The man is a murderer. Okay. Yeah, like, yeah. let's be completely clear. Right. We don't have evidence towards racial bias. And in this country, you are innocent until proven guilty yeah. of both of these things. So, yeah, again, though, uh, I don't think it was just about racism and policing. I think it was about the overall asking the question of why these systemic things have been going on for so long. No, and it, I'm with it. Completely agree. Just could have said that yeah, specifically. No, I get it. I get it. Yeah. And the button to that, again, is it would have been amazing. I mean, he would never have said this, but if he would have said, and maybe black people should stop voting for Democrats unless they fix this problem, you know? But obviously, <laughs> he's not going to say that because he is a political yeah. animal. All politicians are political animals. That's what they do, okay? Let's move on. Uh, ben Shapiro goes into uh, some stuff about the filibuster. Then Obama... Called the filib- he went after the Senate filibuster. Again, this is at a memorial for a man who just died and spent his life attempting to unify the nation around racial issues. Here is Barack Obama saying that the Senate filibuster is a Jim Crow holdover, which is pretty incredible because I'm old enough to remember when Barack Obama, Senator Barack Obama, filibustered Samuel Alito for the Supreme Court, tried to filibuster him. I'm old enough to remember when Democrats, like five seconds ago, filibustered Senator Tim Scott's police reform bill. Was that a Jim Crow vestige? Once we pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, we should keep marching by guaranteeing that every American citizen has equal representation in our government, including the American citizens who live in Washington, D.C. and in Puerto Rico. And if all this takes eliminating the filibuster, another Jim Crow relic, in order to secure the God-given rights of every American, then that's what we should do. Okay, this is such cynical bullshit. I'm sorry, it is. It's incredibly cynical. It's unbelievably cynical. 
This is a man who's happy to use the filibuster when it was in his own benefit. So what is a filibuster? Some of our listeners might not know. A filibuster is a tactic used in the United States Senate to prevent a measure from being brought to a vote by means of obstruction. It's a legal tactic. They get up there and they, they read the dictionary for as long as the, the floor will allow. Exactly. The most common form occurs when one or more senators attempt to delay or block a, a vote on a bill by extending debate on the measure. It's basically a fancy way of saying that a senator wastes time so that a vote on a particular bill can't move forward. We've seen this in all, all kinds of methods. Really great usage of your taxpayer dollars. Yeah, exactly. And here's the reality, Ben. It is a relic of Jim Crow. It was always intended to halt the progress of civil rights legislation. That's what it was invented for. Uh, As recently as just a few weeks ago, and yes, that's right, I said a few weeks ago, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul used the filibuster to hold up an anti-lynching bill. And yes, the bill was largely symbolic. It didn't have much meaning. But there's your vestige of Jim Crow right there. Now, I should also say for the listeners out there, that the filibuster was largely used by Southern Democrats. Again, a lot of people don't know this, and we will eventually do an entire episode about this. But Southern Democrats were traditionally the ones standing in the way of civil rights for people of color. So people need to know that was not the Republicans, even though they might have the support of the racists now. They didn't back then. Okay, Uh, Obama wasn't being a partisan Democrat by calling for the abolishment of the filibuster. He was just calling it out for what it is. And yes, he used it, as have many Democratic senators, but politicians are often forced to use whatever tools they have in their arsenal to get legislation passed for their constituents. And the fact that Obama knows that Democrats use it and use it to their advantage, but yet still said that he thinks it should be done away with is is proof right there that he wasn't being a partisan hack and that he wasn't being cynical. Shapiro has to seriously stretch to paint that narrative there. And what do you think, Jay? I got a saying. You ready? Mm-hmm. Filibuster is lackluster. Debate is great. <laughs> you like that? I came up, I I like came up that with a that lot. on my own. It's I like little, that a lot. I, I, I was taking a sip of beer while, while you said that. I, I, almost, I almost spit my beer <laughs> all take? over the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> so my point is this. If debate holds up a vote, so be it. It should. It's our country's designed to debate the issues. But if you're going to get up there and read a cookbook, then I'm sorry, that's a waste of time and a waste of money, and that should not be allowed in, in the halls of Congress. So I, I, can get, I can get behind what he said. Okay, so, so, so you, are, you are saying that you agree the filibuster is stupid, and as do I. Utilized incorrectly. If the, you're going to sit there and debate the issue, please do for as long as you need. But like I said, if you're going to go up there and read a cookbook, then you're wasting everyone's time and money. But do you believe... Ben, do you agree with Ben Shapiro's take that this was a cynical sort of thing for Obama to say? I think he went out on a limb. Uh, I, you know, I don't. It was think the boldest was, part of the speech for sure. I yeah. completely agree with you, yeah. and I think that no one was expecting it. You know, I agree with what you're saying in that the spirit of this man was bold. Yeah. Okay. And and I think Obama was acting in the spirit of this man. Was it appropriate? We could debate that all we want. Mm -hmm. Was it within the spirit of John Lewis? That's not debatable. It's it's without question. I mean, he was bolder than Obama, John Lewis. Yeah, I mean, uh, Barack Obama went to Trump's inauguration. John Lewis didn't. You know, John Lewis was a bold guy. Okay. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, no, I like that. That's a good way of putting it. Okay. So then Shapiro goes on to talk a little bit about uh, voter suppression. And here's what that sounded like. President Obama didn't just stop at calling for the overthrow of the filibuster and suggesting that today's police and federal agents are in league with George Wallace and Bull Connor. 
He then suggested that there is a wide variety of attempts to stop the vote. Again, there is no evidence of this. The idea of widespread voter suppression in the United States is nonsense. It is nonsense. It's nonsense when Donald Trump says it. It is nonsense when Barack Obama says it. It is nonsense. The black population of the United States, thank God, votes in heavy numbers. And in the last several election cycles, and certainly when Barack Obama was elected in both 2008 and 2012, outvoted their share of the population. There are those in power who are doing their darndest to discourage people from voting by closing polling locations and targeting minorities and students with restrictive ID laws and attacking our voting rights with surgical precision. Now, I know this is a celebration of John's life. There are some who might say we shouldn't dwell on such things. But that's why I'm talking about it. Oh, well, you know, there's something who's like that stopping black people from voting ain't a problem. But I'm going to talk about it anyway. I said when I was introing this segment that Shapiro didn't say anything factually inaccurate, but I forgot about this one, okay? He's blatantly wrong about this, and he's gaslighting his audience by suggesting that voter suppression isn't happening. From gerrymandering to eliminating eliminating polling locations in minority communities to uh, restrictive voter ID laws, the GOP have been attempting to make it harder for minority and poor communities to vote for a very, very long time. And some of them even admitted as much. But I don't want to get too much into the weeds here because I think Jay and I are going to do an entire episode about the history of voting, voter fraud, and voter suppression in the very near future. So I'll just leave it at that and just say he's just uh, just flat out wrong about that. The overall gist of our takeaway from this is you know, you celebrate this particular man by talking about the man in quotes. And I think that it's not appropriate in in most situations. I would say that this is fine. Okay, so finally, uh, Ben Shapiro sort of sums up his entire opinion here, um, and this is what that sounded like. This is how you got Donald Trump. You guys want to know how you got Donald Trump? You gaslit the entire American population. You suggested over and over that this man was the epitome of class, that he was above politics, that he was some sort of godlike figure from on high. He is just a, a typical Chicago-style machine politician. He always was. And here he was using a memorial service for a man whose politics I disagreed with in many ways, but who did do incredible good for the United States. And instead of just paying tribute to him in a classy way, the way George W. Bush did, Barack Obama got up there and suggested that America is living with the vestiges of Jim Crow and Bull Connor. He suggested that that America is dominated by neo-segregationists and people attempting to stop black people from voting. He was a deeply divisive president. The divisions on race in this country did not start with Donald Trump. Look back at the polls. Divisions on race in this country began in 2009 with Barack Obama getting overtly, overtly racially political. You can look at the polls. Hopes for racial reconciliation in this country were never higher than when Barack Obama was elected. And within two years of his election, they'd completely cratered. And they continue to crater today. Okay, first off. Whoever said Obama was a godlike figure? I've literally never heard anyone say that. And, and so that's some some right-wing fan fiction to me right there. Uh, second, uh, this is more of, of the kind of thing we talked about with our buddy Mark on our pod uh, about supposed liberal bias in academia. What was that pod number 10? Episode 10. Episode 10. Yeah, go back and listen if you haven't. Uh, the perception of bias from the right is rooted in the fact that kids are being taught the full story of American history now, including all of her very many warts. And this inherently bothers certain people and makes them feel 
as though they're teaching kids to hate America, when in fact they're just giving them more information. What Shapiro is really saying here when he claims that Obama was a racially divisive president is that to him, it was better when we kind of pushed all the warts under the rug and didn't really talk about them. I was watching over the weekend, sort of sidebar here, Jay. I was watching the movie uh, Trading Places. Have you seen that movie? Great movie. Yeah, I haven't a, seen it for a while. I only make $1 bets with my dad because of that movie. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you're a snowflake who gets who is easily sensitive, especially towards racism, don't watch this movie. But it, it came out in 1983 and it is objectively hilarious. But it absolutely paints the narrative of black people being kind of a permanent underclass, you know, sort of an impoverished, uneducated population with a propensity for crime. And it's, again, objectively hilarious if you could get past that stuff. It's it's satirical. It's satire. Of course. I mean, it's what comedy was designed for. Of it's course. What, but if you, you know. watch it, it is it is extraordinarily racist. It. Yeah. Um, now, I think back then in 1983, when it was made, early 80s, so we're talking about roughly 40 years ago. I mean, Eddie Murphy is also in the movie. He is. He is. But the, I'm getting to that. You know, I think 40 years ago, we didn't use the N-word openly. We had made it through Jim Crow and the 60s civil rights movement, and African Americans were sort of an integral part of the workforce. However, it was openly acceptable to sort of patronize the black community in entertainment. And I think Eddie Murphy was just in that world. So it wasn't a big deal for him. He wasn't, th- people weren't thinking through the scope of racism back then. It just wasn't really a thing that they did. That's sort of where the notion of the token black guy came in. You know, have you ever seen the movie there's the black guy who's like, acts like a black guy. And that's, you know, that's part of the movie. You know, we don't do that anymore. But back in the eighties, that was very popular. And I think there are simply a lot of people who thought that everything back then was easier. You know, black people sort of knew their place in society. We all pretended to be friends and nobody questioned why things were the way they were. When Obama became president, I think that was the signal to a lot of white Americans that racism was officially over. The issue was over. We don't have to talk about it anymore. And I think those same people were monumentally disappointed when instead of declaring racism officially over, Obama started openly questioning why some of these societal inequities exist in the first place. And I think this made a lot of people uncomfortable because we finally had to start talking about it. And ultimately, that's why Ben Shapiro sees Obama as such a divisive president. The divisiveness is over the fact that he has to listen to stuff that he doesn't think makes the country better. It's growing pains. Most all the time, growth is painful. And you have to sit and you have to hear things you don't like about yourself. It's not unlike what we're going through now. And you did this in the Osage thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. With the Native Americans. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the stories that are buried because we don't like what the warts look like, uh, they have to bubble up at some point and they have to be addressed. And I agree. That was a it's never going to be addressed more than with the first black president. All right. All right. Very good. Um, we're on the same page there. So we have a little bonus for you on this segment. I know it's been a while, but, uh, but I had to throw this one in here. Uh, I think this perfectly sums everything up. Uh, this was something that Ben Shapiro said later on in the same podcast. He had already gotten off the topic of Obama. Um, and it was in regard to Trump's suggestion that you may have heard last week that, uh, he may delay the election because there is going to be voter fraud or some such nonsense. Um, Trump tweeted this the day before uh, Ben did this podcast, and this is what Ben had to say about it. So I remember that yesterday, President Trump floated the idea of postponing the election, which is fundamentally unconstitutional. You cannot do that. The The election is set as the first 
as the first weekend in November. Right? It has been set that way by the Constitution of the United States for well over 150 years. The president doesn't have that kind of power. Now, yesterday, I kind of shrugged it off a little bit because Trump says a lot of crap. And it's true. He does say a lot of crap. And I'm not going to pretend I take Trump particularly seriously as a person. I don't. I've never taken Trump particularly seriously as a person because I think if you do, then you're doing it wrong, frankly. Okay, so this is what Trump said exactly. He said, with universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the USA, delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote. Ask no one ever. <laughs> exactly. So that's what Trump wrote, and uh, this is further what, what, what Ben Shapiro had to say about that. Now, the question is whether you take Trump with a grain of salt because he's fundamentally an unserious human being, which is what I've thought for a very long time that has not wavered for years, or whether you take it super duper seriously. If you take it seriously, it's a fascist threat. If Barack Obama said, I'm delaying the election, everybody on the right would, would completely go nuts. The reason I don't take Trump as seriously as Obama is because I don't think that Trump is as serious a person as Obama. I think he mouths off. If Obama had said that, everyone on the right would have gone nuts. Quote from Ben Shapiro. Okay, boom. All right. Well, Ben Shapiro just gave away the farm. In his assessment of Trump's statement there, he literally proves that there are still vast disparities that exist between white men and black men. The notion that the president of the United States should not be taken seriously is a luxury that simply would never be applied to a black politician, let alone a black president. And I'm pretty sure everyone implicitly knows this, don't you, Jay? They'd hang him up by his feet. And I love how the right has such a charming sense of humor all of a sudden you know that, that, that's the funniest part you know nothing obama did was funny to them it was all very very serious and obama you know trump is funny in sort of a laughing at him way not in a laughing with him way he's it, you know obama was legitimately funny i i thought at least he had a very good sense of humor there was this this uh video if you remember that he did where he was making fun of himself you know he went on zach galifianakis's show he, he he always did things like that which i thought were great the right hated it they thought it was beneath the office but he he did this video where he was remember that hashtag for a while uh, thanks obama that was like yeah. it was like a thing we blame all of our problems on obama and he did a video where he had this glass of milk and a cookie that couldn't fit in the glass and he went to dip the cookie in the milk and he sort of looks up at the camera and he goes thanks obama like blaming himself well, for the fact that right humor. He had yeah. a great sense of humor like that but that wasn't i remember fox news doing a whole piece about that like that was beneath the presidency he shouldn't be doing things like that but all of a sudden right the sense of humor is is out on the well you don't understand trump he's just he's a jokester what oh you can't take a joke he's he's the president of the united states right exactly so it just this stuff gets me so aggravated because it's no, nothing so gets me more annoyed obvious. yeah it's ridiculous it really is you can't throw something the president says out just because he he doesn't really know what he's saying right <laughs> exactly it's the president it's that, and and shapiro literally says that there he he says i don't take him serious i don't think he's a serious person maybe try and vote a serious person in office next <laughs> right time. exactly hopefully we'll do that Okay, and that is our new segment, Virtually Debatable. We hope you enjoyed it. We're going to bring this back with I other people. I enjoyed it. That was fun. It was really fun. It really I was sort of like a three-way debate. I thought it was good. And uh, let's move on. We have one more segment for you today, and it's a very short one. We are going back. We brought this segment back. Uh, we brought this segment to you. We had to. Yeah. We were last, compelled. We were compelled to bring this segment to you last week. It is called The Trump Whisperer, and it even has a theme song. There's no way. There's no way, there's no way, 
So uh, this Trump whisperer is only going to have one thing, and it's going to be part or a very short part of the Donald Trump Axios interview that he did with Jonathan Swan. Now, if you haven't watched this and you are looking for a little more depression in your life, you should go to YouTube right now and watch the entire thing. Because I had said last week that, or two weeks ago, that the interview with Wallace on Fox was the most embarrassing interview I've ever yeah, seen. Little by did President. you know. This just, I, Jay and I talked about doing a full Trump whisperer on everything, but there was just, you couldn't separate the, the idiocy out. It, I mean, and the funniest part to me, Jay, is that their big, thing uh their big talking point about biden is that he's senile okay and you know what they might very well be true he has he has he's lost a step or two but if you watch this video and don't think that donald trump is equally or a hell of a lot more at senile i mean he can't even string a sentence together simple questions but there was one question in particular that I thought was, again, a softball question. And since we just talked about John Lewis, it was in relation to John Lewis, and so I thought it would be appropriate. And the question and the answer sounded like this. John Lewis is lying in state in the U.S. Capitol. How do you think history will remember John Lewis? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know John Lewis. Uh, He chose not to come to my uh, uh, inauguration. Uh, he chose, uh, I, I don't, uh, I never met John Lewis, actually, I don't believe. Do you find him impressive? Uh, I can't say one way or the other. I find a lot of people impressive. I find many people not impressive, but no, but I didn't Do go. you find his story he impressive? Come, he didn't come to my inauguration. He didn't come to my State of the Union speeches. And that's okay, that's his right. And again, nobody has done more right. for but, but back black to, Americans than I have. I understand. He should have come. But back, I think he made a big mistake. But, but, I think ta- he but taking come. your relationship with him out of it, do you find his story impressive, what he's done for this country? He was a person that devoted a lot of energy and a lot of heart to civil rights, but there were many others also. I'm uh, under the table. I'm under the table. Yeah, it, you it's know, so cringy. It, it, every every answer was every, so cringy. Every answer was was cringy in the interview. And the the great thing about Jonathan Swan again, remember we talked about in, uh, on the uh, the Wallace interview, like somebody had to get fired for putting him in his suit in 100 degrees in DC heat and having him sweat his balls off. Um, <laughs> the, someone has to get fired for putting him with Jonathan Swan because he. I, ha- I have to imagine it was him. Maybe who else would be. Like who else would? For those who don't know, Swan is considered the hardest interview in in DC. He is the one guy who does he he doesn't show reverence for the office, and he will come at you with hard questions. He will make you answer them. He he doesn't. Can I tell? Can I tell you what? I'm going to push back on what you said. I think he shows more reverence for the office by holding a president Mm -hmm. to answer a question than anyone else who throws a bunch of softballs. Maybe, Maybe you're right. I was I was saying like there's a lot of interviewers who have. This sort of timid yeah, they get, approach, they get yeah, a timid the, approach yeah. to the presidency. They don't want yeah. to be. They don't want to cross the line into disrespectful. And I think, I think, well, I don't think he did in that interview. By the way, in the slightest, I don't think so either. But he is, he is a guy who is very aggressive, and Agreed. he stay, he makes him stay on the topic because Trump is very good at pivoting and getting everyone confused, and then we he's move not very on. good at. He's just not very. He's he's not very good at it. No one holds him to it. Right, exactly. Which is why it was it was it was it was refreshing. So you. Really Really yeah. should watch it if you haven't watched it. But here's so uh, remember the Trump whisperer uh, segment here is to pretend that we are 
Republican operatives or Republican strategists and aiding. Yeah, aiding we're, we're, aiding, we're aiding the president yeah. so he could get reelected, even though neither of us want that. And uh, we are trying to instruct him on what he could have said. So this is as simple as it had to be for such a softball question at such a I mean, just it's a pivotal moment. The guy just died. I mean, unbelievable. This is all he had to say. John Lewis was one of the great American heroes. He died as he lived, an American hero. He was somebody that I had significant disagreements with on policy. But putting that aside, I have a deep and abiding respect for the man. That's it. Wonderful. I'll, I'll no. vote for you. Yeah. No, I, I mean, you could still throw in that we had significant disagreements. Absolutely. I mean, Obama said that about McCain at his memorial. You know, it, 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 that's fine to say. You could be a little bit political, but at least say, I, I mean, even people who don't like John Lewis recognize that he was a, an American hero, a civil rights hero. It's just so stupid. And there's, a, I got to say, there's a difference between uh, speaking about someone in life and speaking about someone in death. Now, he did not show up to the inauguration. That's true. But have a little respect for the dead. Exactly. And, and don't make that an issue. The guy can't rebut you. He, he can't, you know, he, he's gone. So have a little respect for it. Excellent point, Jay. And with that, we will end the Trump whisper and move on to our topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. Okay, so the topic of the day this week is going to be Israel. Now, Israel is a very broad, very complicated topic uh, with a large amount of related issues. Um, so we are going to be bringing up and coming back to Israel a great deal on this show, we anticipate. And so this won't be the last time we discuss it. Today, we really wanted to be uh, dispelling and discussing some myths and talking about the establishment of Israel as a state. And speaking of which, I believe my good buddy Jay has his famous buzzed history to help us through that. So Jay, kick it when you're ready. Welcome to Buzzed History, everyone. Today, we have a very serious topic that is highly debated and highly controversial. It is the history and the formation of the state of Israel. Let's begin, shall we? The history of this land is evidentially undeniable as the Canaanites, Israelites, Judeans, Babylonians, Persians, and Romans would reside in these often disputed lands, the constant being the historically Jewish presence, which has behind it solidified and archaeological evidence in the form of uncovered villages, and writings from as far back as 1209 BC. It is the birthplace of Judaism and Christianity, and between the 4th and 7th centuries contained a Greco-Roman majority, which lasted until it was conquered by the Arab Muslim empires. And although there was a constant Jewish presence, especially during and after the Ottoman period in the 1500s, it would remain predominantly Muslim until it landed in British hands in 1917 via the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration is a public statement made by the British government on November 2nd, 1917, during World War I, announcing support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people. This declaration came in the form of a letter from the UK's Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour, to Lord Rothschild, a leader of the British Jewish community, and for forwarding to the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Ireland. It was published on November 9, 1917. The declaration was endorsed by Serbia, France, and Italy in 1918, although further complications would arise with the latter two governments. In 1922, the United States Congress officially announced America's support for the Balfour Declaration. At this time, it was Britain that held sway over the territories, including Jerusalem, and through the dissolving of the Ottoman Empire, Turkey had to renounce sovereignty over much of the Middle East. Some say that this declaration birthed the currently continuing Arab-Israel conflict, 
1933, the controversial Ha-Avara Agreement was enacted, under which 50,000 German Jews were transferred to the territories sans any possessions, courtesy of Nazi Germany. In fact, between 1920 and 1938, 250,000 Jews arrived in the Holy Land amid the fascism and anti-Semitism swiftly growing in Europe, which in 1935 came in the form of the Nuremberg Laws. In 1939, a white paper was published by the British closing the territories and agreeing to the entrance of only 75,000 Jews into the Holy Land. Both Arab and Jewish leadership ultimately rejected the white paper. Now, I hope everyone here listening is familiar with the Holocaust, but for a short refresher, the Holocaust was a horrific mass genocide of 6 million Jews through varied inhumane methods such as mass shootings and gassings perpetrated by Nazi Germany led by Adolf Hitler during his attempted subjugation of Europe. During World War II, as their people were being slaughtered, the Jewish agency established a Jewish army that would fight alongside the British forces. While England accepted this, they demanded that a number of Jewish recruits matched the number of Arab recruits. When it became clear that the Arabs would not fight for Britain and instead aligned with Nazi Germany, this plan was scrapped. And as the war came to an end and David Ben-Gurion picked up the flag of the Zionist movement along with the Jews of the United States behind him, the British labor government, due to both their weakened state after the war, and the understanding of their dependence on Arab oil, decided to maintain the 1939 white paper policies. Illegal migration became the only way into the territories for the European Jews fleeing Europe, having just survived some of the worst torture ever inflicted on a race of people. During this time, known as the Aliyah Bet, over 110,000 Jews entered the territories, and the Jewish population of the area increased to 33%. The British continued blocking the entry of Jews into the area despite a growing Jewish resistance movement and guerrilla war. Furthermore, the British began imprisoning the Jews, many of them children and orphans fresh out of concentration camps, in the Athlete Detainee Camp and Cyprus internment camps. In the U.S., Congress loudly criticized the British handling of the situation and considered delaying loans vital to the British post-war recovery effort. Under this pressure, the British allowed the refugees to enter the Holy Land at a rate of 750 per month. And on April 2, 1947, the United Kingdom requested that this entire issue be handled by the United Nations General Assembly. A committee was formed, and both the Jews and Arabs were to be consulted. However, upon the first visit of the United Nations, the Arab Higher Committee boycotted the meetings entirely, beginning a trend that would continue to repeat itself to the current day. The UN ultimately voted to partition the territory and establish a Jewish state, an Arab state, and the city of Jerusalem to be under an international trusteeship system. The vote included a plan for the British to allow substantial Jewish migration by February 1, 1948, which the British ignored, holding Jews in camps until 1949. Back in newly established Israel, the people of Israel were not allowed to breathe the air of their newly established land for more than 30 seconds. On the evening of Friday, May 14, 1948, the day that the British mandate over the territories expired, Israel's Declaration of Independence was recognized by the United States, the Soviet Union, and many other governments. David Ben-Gurion was named the first Prime Minister of Israel, and the last British Army soldier withdrew from Israel. Egypt launched an air assault that very evening, cutting the power from Tel Aviv in advance of an Arab invasion. That would include forces from Egypt, Transjordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq the very next day. All countries that refused to accept the UN plan. The Israelis, well under-equipped, fought off the Arab invasion and defensively seized key territories, including the Galilee, the Territory Coast, and a strip of territory connecting the coastal region to the western section of Jerusalem. The UN, having brokered a ceasefire, left Israel in permanent control of these territories. This left the country with a substantial Jewish majority. This was not the end of the fighting. 
as the Yitzchak Rabin-led Six-Day War would break out in 1967, again increasing the Israeli border, again defensively capturing land from Jordan, Egypt, and Syria, including the old city of Jerusalem, the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the Rest Bank, and the Golan Heights. In 1973, Egypt and Syria attempted to take on the Jewish state. They were ultimately pushed back from their positions and overtaken. This led to the Camp David Accords in 1978, through which Israel returned the Sinai in exchange for Egyptian recognition and peace, which was the first recognition of the Israeli state by an Arab country. Since then, time and again, peace accords with the Arabs were drawn up and set ablaze by the Arab world's refusal to recognize the state of Israel. As Abba Iban said after the Geneva peace talks in December 1973, the Arabs, quote, never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. But those stories are for another time. Thank you, everyone. This has been another Buzzed History. Buzz History. Great job, Jay. I, I actually really learned a lot in there. It's, it's really a topic that few Americans, especially the young Americans, know. Uh, and and uh, a lot of people have no idea why we are so intrinsically tied to the state of Israel, what the significance is. I'd love to talk about something that happened a little bit more recently. Okay. Um, so Seth Rogen did Mark Maron's podcast recently. I listened uh, and to I it. Took a, I, yeah, I took a listen as well, since it started to accumulate a great deal of press for some of the comments that Seth Rogen made about Israel. It's a pretty good Seth example. Seth Rogen's Jewish, by the way. He is Jewish, both, yeah. and Mark Maron. Both yeah, of them Maron are Jewish. Is too. Yeah, you're right. Um, and, and, and I think it's a good example of how a great many Jews, kind of like what you were just talking about, most of them on the left and most of them completely uneducated, think about Israel at the moment. Uh, I, I'm not sure why the Zionist movement comes from the right. It's a political position. Um, and we've talked about it a little bit on here that the left typically fights for those that are perceived as being mistreated. There's a little bit of, uh, I don't want to call it fake news, call it misinformation that goes around here. There's an organization that pushes, pushes this agenda called BDS. It runs pretty rampant in Hollywood entertainment communities. I've seen it myself firsthand. Uh, BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, and the Mission Statement, as stated on the website, is, quote, to work to end international support for Israelis' oppression of Palestinians and pressure Israel to comply with international law which in case you were wondering, they aren't breaking. Uh, it's very anti-Semitic, even amongst Jews who feel this way. And that coupled with the severe anti-Semitism happening here and a great deal in Europe, it creates a very scary propositional wave. Uh, I thought about another interesting thing today. And there, look, there are a lot of, um, let's call them for these purposes, uh, you know, neo-Nazi groups that have come out publicly for Trump. Uh, I'd love to know how they reconcile that, considering uh, not only is the Republican Party the party of Israel, and Israeli support. But Trump himself is so publicly pro-Israel. I'd love to understand how they can justify that support for him. Uh, I don't see us two, uh, two Jews having any of them on the show, so I'm not sure we'll ever know. Can I, um, can I, can I give my... Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, I think it's because Trump also talks about issues that are, that are important to them, and they, you can't have every... They're not going to vote for Gavin Newsom. You know, uh, it, it, they're not going to vote for Nancy Pelosi. It's um, a lesser of two evils. Right. It's, it, I think for them, you know, he was a guy who was talking about issues that were important to them, mainly immigration. You know, immigration being, the, you know, a, a big, big thing. You know, and, and I think I would think being Nazis, they'd be like uh, one issue people. They'd be like, OK, you support the Jews. We don't like you. Yeah. I, you know, they might also believe that somewhere deep down he, uh, you know, a lot of people believe Trump is anti-Semitic. I've always said that I don't think he's anything. You know, I've made this argument a lot. Um, I think also, as we've talked about before, Trump winked and nodded at those people, the alt-right. But I don't blame Trump for the or any politician for that matter for the audience that gathers around them i don't think it's their Agreed. fault that's what i would say 
Um, but anyway, go on. So, so I'd like to play some of these clips from that Mark Marin, uh, Seth Rogen podcast, and we can have a little conversation about it. We'll keep it short because we got uh, one final segment for you guys before we go. So here is uh, Seth Rogen, um, and this was the most uh, talked about clip that he that uh, he gave. And and I also think that as a Jewish person, like I was fed a huge amount of lies about Israel my entire, the entire life, life. You know, yeah. they never tell you that. Oh, by the way, there were people there. They make it seem like it was just like they're sitting there. Yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. the fucking was, doors I, open. Hours for it, the it, taking. Israel is the thing that I was that I look back on and look at as like maybe that was the thing I was like most misinformed about. Sure. My, like I think the religious stuff there are. I can reconcile it more like with what we're talking about right. now. There are tools, but like with, you know, I think like just specifically like Israel and Palestine, like that was stuff that like I was, and not because of my parents or anything. I think just like culturally, yeah. it was not in the conversation of the average Jewish family to really get into the specifics of what was happening. Yeah, over you don't, there, you don't know? question Israel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And also, like, I remember being shown Holocaust movies, the the movies, oh, yeah. like, and and that was a bit of brainwashing, probably for to for the better, where you're just sort of like this this happened. It, it, it you can never forget it. It was horrible. And these are this is the pile of shoes. Here's all the hair. This is the exactly. with the bodies in it. That's you know so dumb. Yeah, I mean it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, I I will actually say also that um this issue and that growing sentiment on the left which is all rooted in ignorance, which is what we're trying to do here, Jay. We're trying to unignorant people. That's right. Um <laughs> uh but I no, I was going to say that 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 sentiment is the reason I uh I uh, I eventually left the Democratic yeah. Party and re-registered as an independent. It's one of the reasons, but it, it is a big one for me, for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's understandable. Yeah. And it, and it's unfortunate that it all comes from ignorance. Because what I was going to say is like I I agree with them that the conversations weren't had. But when you do have the conversations and you explore the facts, it doesn't really change anything. No. Yeah. You know, it, there's there's all solidified evidence for why Israel's there. And, and, and you know what, actually, this brings me to our, our next segment. Mm -hmm. Good. Let's do it. Um, and so uh, in my continued glee at taking things that are already named in the world and changing one word, we're calling this one Myth Bashers. And I think it's pretty self-explanatory. We're going to explore some common myths about Israel and the Arabs and bash them. And what I, mean, what I, what I mean by bash them is we're going to tell you the truths. So here it is, Myth Bashers. This is Myth Bashers. This, 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 this is Myth Bashers. Myth number one. Jews have no claim to Israel. So other than the fact that Jews have called Israel home in some fashion since the Copper Age, considering the Jewish calendar begins in 3761 BC, which is 5,781 years ago, there are a few points we can help guide us here. The Jewish people originally settled and developed the land and continue to do so upon their modern day inheritance. They've covered the land in trees, created irrigation, repopulated the animals. The list goes on and on. Uh, two, the international community granted political sovereignty to the Jewish people. That was very widespread, and a great many governments agreed on this sovereignty and recognized Israel as a state. Uh, three, the territory was captured. The, the territory that was captured was captured in defensive wars. Uh, and number four, the land was promised to the Jews religiously and originally. So, you know, I don't know if you have anything to add there, but that's why the Jews have you know, the Jews have claimed Israel. I, I did know all those things. And and if I had anything to add, it would be just to sort of give a, my final summation on this one small 
segment that we're talking about Israel. Like we said, it's, it's a very complex issue that we're going to come back to for different reasons. Uh, July 29th, last month, uh, was the Jewish holiday of Tisha B'Av. Uh, I am not a good Jew at all, as I've said before. I'm, <laughs> I'm not a practicing that. Jew. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm uh, I'm a non-practicing Jew. I I my the extent of my Jewishness is that I eat bagels and I like locks. That's a pretty yeah. significant part of yeah, your Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Um but so July 29th was the Jewish holiday of Tisha B'av. Uh it's a solemn holiday apparently uh where Jews fast, uh, you know, Jews fast in a lot of holidays, but uh yeah, to commemorate right. Uh they fast to commemorate a number of disasters in Jewish history that occurred uh primarily the destruction of both Solomon's temple by the Babylonian Empire and the the second temple by the Roman Empire in Jerusalem. Now, the point is this. There is a fundamental lack of historical knowledge, as we've been talking about, when it comes to the Jews and Israel. I think a lot of people, including Seth Rogen, think that it was a repo- that Israel was a repository of Euro- European Jews, but yeah. what you should realize is that the idea of Israel as a Jewish state is something that had been dreamed of for like literally 4,000 years, maybe even longer, right? Yeah, So, you know, what Seth Rogen gets wrong is the idea that there's no Jewish connection to the land of Israel. Of course there is, a very strong connection. World history has shown that wherever Jews reside in the world, there's a threat. There always has been, right? They are history's punching bags. And the history of Israel has shown that the fact that there's a Jewish state that defends Jewish rights is a blessing for Jews all over the world. And American Jews are safer because of Israel's existence. Yeah, I agree. I think what, and, and he hasn't said this, but I, what I would imagine is the case is that like so many people, they take a look at the Bible and they say, eh, it's all made up. When there is so much history in the Bible, there is history that we can see and feel and touch in the Holy Land that's been uh, uncovered. I mean, yeah. the city of David has been uncovered. David was a king in Israel. It's a fact. The temple stood there. Those, that, those are facts. Yeah. And you've been to Israel. I haven't. So I, I, I take your word on all that. And uh, I know that um, for you as a, as a person of faith, going to Israel had a big influence on you. I went twice. I went once before I came to faith and once after. And both times it was extraordinary. Of course, connecting my faith to a historical place was, was really uh, next level. Um, But even when you go and, uh, you know, your first time will be amazing because you get to see the history going back, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of years. It's it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, You know, I also think that there's a lot and we could talk about this on a whole other episode, but I think. A lot of people don't understand the the Judeo-Christian thing and how that ties together. Israel, for a lot of Christians, is just as important as it is to Jews. Yeah, my my wife's mother uh, leads tours there multiple times a year, extraordinary tours, where as a Christian, you can go and connect to the roots of your faith. They don't teach this in a lot of churches in America. There's what we call replacement theology, where it's just the New Testament. They just leave out the old when the old is just as important to the Christian faith as, as the new. So. Okay, so Jay, you got more myths. Let's uh, let's continue to go here. So many more myths for you. So okay. myth number two, Palestine is a place and was always an Arab country. So the name itself, Palestine, is derived from the Philistines as a Aegean people who settled in modern-day Israel and the Gaza Strip. The Romans applied the name Palestina to Judea in the southern portion of the West Bank in an effort to minimize Jewish identification, uh, a trend, with the land of Israel. The Arabic word Philistine is derived from the Latin Jewish independence in this land has lasted for more than 400 years, and if not for foreign conquerors, Israel historically would be more than 3,000 years old today. 
And interestingly, things like the King Crane Commission exist, which found that both Christian and Muslim Arabs opposed any plan to create a country called Palestine because it was viewed as a recognition of Zionist claims. In 1937, a local Arab leader told the Peel Commission, which ultimately suggested the partition, uh, quote, there is no such country as Palestine. Palestine is a term that Zionists invented. There is no Palestine in the Bible. Our country was for centuries part of Syria. So that's an interesting, uh, you know, a point of fact that most people aren't even aware of. I was not aware uh, and of that. It, it's important when you're talking about these things. Um, so myth three, the Zionists were colonialist tools of Western imperialism. We hear these words a lot today. So uh, considering the rampant anti-Semitism that continues today, I do not think you can say that the West has been wholly supportive of Israel. There's a lot of anti-Semitism occurring right now in Europe. Uh, in the 1940s, the Jewish underground movements fought an anti-colonial war against the British. So that's, you know, that's a big, big deal. Jews are also farmers and laborers. They want to live by their own work and not by exploiting others, which is a, you know, a uh, sort of tentpole of colonialism. Uh, and you can look at kibbutzes as an example. What, what, what is a kibbutz, just for our listeners? A uh, kibbutz is a, it's, it's like a little bastion of socialism, actually. It's everyone right. working for the good of the, of the kibbutz and they, they, they farm and they, they live together. And it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a system of, um, I wouldn't say self-governance because there is a government in, in Israel, but they, they sort of live together and it's like a and, big uh, community family. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like a, a hippie commune. I yeah. <laughs> cool. Bernie Sanders would love it. He'd love it. He'd love it. Yeah. So myth number four, uh, prior to 1948, the Palestinian Arabs were never offered a state. So, from the beginning of the very beginning of this process in 1937, every entity that worked towards creating an Israeli state has offered the same state to the Arabs. Each and every time the Arabs rejected the plan on the grounds that it asked that they recognize Israel's statehood. They just won't do it. And you'll hear me come back to this point over and over and over again. It is a sticking point for the Arab world. And it's been the problem in almost every single uh, peace talk that's happened since. Myth number five this is a big one. Israeli settlements are illegal. So Jews, as we've said, have lived in these areas since ancient time. And the only time they were prohibited from living in the territories was, was during uh, Jordan's rule from 1948 to 1967. Now, the president of the International Court of Justice has said that a country acting in self-defense may seize and occupy territory when necessary to protect itself. The United States official position is that settlements are not illegal per resolution 242 of the UN Security Council. Booyah. Not illegal. Not illegal. There are there are people who are pro-Israel that do believe that the Israeli government, in an attempt to sort of be the tough guy on campus all the time, um, which, by the way, they have to be. Yeah, um, I was going to say for it's, their survival. It's defensive, yeah. right? Um, a lot of people do feel that they use some of their settlements to sort of rub it in their faces. Do you agree with that? I do not agree that it's rubbing it in their faces. I believe that there needs to be an Israel presence in these settlements to protect. Israel. I mean, I'll get into this in a minute, but uh, there's all kinds of terrorist activity when you leave Air Israel out of the equation. It's just right. Again, it's just fact. Uh, myth number six. Settlements are an obstacle to peace. Now, look at the, let's look at the evidence here. From 1949 to 1967, when Jews were not allowed to live on the West Bank, as I mentioned, the Arabs refused peace. From 1967 to 1977, the Labor Party of Israel established small settlements in the territories and the Arabs refused peace. In 1978, Israel froze settlement building for three months, hoping that other Arabs would join the Camp David peace process with Egypt. None came. In 1994, Jordan signed a peace agreement with Israel despite the settlements growing in the territories. The rapid growth in the territories between 92 and 96 did not preclude the Arabs from signing the Oslo Accords in 93 or 95. So it, it didn't make a difference one way or the other. 
Um, in August 2005, Israel evacuated all of the settlements in the Gaza Strip and four in northern Samaria, and the Arab terror attacks continued. Uh, a little bit of what I was talking about. In 2008, Prime Minister Ehud Olmert offered to withdraw from 94% of the West Bank. The deal was rejected. And the bottom line is that Palestinians want all the Jews out of the territory, and they want it free and clear. Of the, and they want it free and clear. And they they don't want to be. They don't want to recognize Israel's statehood. They will never agree to that premise. And and beyond that, my contention, you know, there's that uh, that saying from from sea to sea, Palestine should be free or whatever it is. I I, I might be botching that a little bit, but um, it's not just that they want uh, the Jews out of Israel. They want to see. It's a very Hitlerian sort of view. They want the annihilation and extermination of Jews all over the world, uh, but especially in the Middle East. Yeah. No, that is a perfect segue to myth number seven. There we go. A Palestinian state poses no danger to Israel and they will be welcome there. Now, Palestinian, offic Palestinian officials have made clear that they plan to double down, as you said, on Nazi Germany's genocide. In December 2010, Mahmoud Abbas stated, if there is an independent Palestinian state with Jerusalem as the capital, we won't agree to the presence of one Israeli in it, whereas there are obviously a great many Arabs living in Israel, uh, and they thrive there. Uh, imagine what would happen if Israel said they weren't allowing any Arabs or Muslims to live there. There's the international two community would freak. Yeah, the two million. It's it's unbelievable, and and they would not reciprocate. And the they're in the government, by the way. They have a representation in the government. It's a hypocrisy of the tallest order. Yeah. Uh, myth number eight: uh, If Israel leaves the territories, there will be peace. So if Israel has withdrawn from every inch of Gaza at great financial costs, and what has that done? Well, I'll tell you what that has done. A 10-year barrage of rocket fire and terrorist attacks. These actions have forced Israel, as I mentioned, to maintain a presence to ensure the safety of its citizens. I'm sorry. It's just no, there's no way you, you, you can cut it other than stating the facts that every time Israel has uh, left any part of the settlements and, and they've sort of uh, left their presence there, the, Israel's been attacked. Uh, literally attacked by terrorists uh, who would come into the settlements and launch rockets at Israel, and and th they can't leave. Yeah, uh, could, you, could you just talk a little bit about how Israel defends itself? A lot of people probably don't know about Israel's military or that or the Iron Dome or anything like that. Sure. Well, the IDF is an amazing, amazing uh, system, uh, military system. Uh, every single Israeli citizen must serve. Uh, which we can talk about another time. I believe that should be the case here. Yeah. It doesn't have to be uh, in combat, but they, they serve their country. And I think because of such, they have a great respect for their country. Um, and so, yes, uh, there is a, a system that we actually helped with a great deal in Israel called Iron Dome. That is a defense system against incoming rockets, and it is incredible technology. And, you know, there are rockets that get through, but most of them do not. It's, it's really quite phenomenal. But there is... Uh rocket fire that that hits that iron dome almost every day correct every day yeah it's it's non it's a non-stop barrage and the the arabs in the settlements it's what gives gives them the ability to launch those rockets they're incredibly close the last myth i'm gonna i'm gonna myth you all right so here's the last myth myth number nine the palestinians have never been offered a state of their own now i mentioned this a little bit earlier the palestinians have had numerous opportunities to create an independent state but have rejected the offer time after time. Uh, here's a select uh, few examples. In 1937, the Peel Commission pro proposed the creation of an Arab state. In 1939, the British White Paper proposed the creation of a unitary Arab state. In 1947, the UN would have created an, an Arab state larger than Israel as part of its partition plan. Uh, the 1979 Egypt-Israel peace negotiations offered the Palestinians autonomy, which would have ultimately led to independence. 
The Oslo agreements of the 90s laid out a path to independence but was derailed by terrorism. In 2000, Ehud Barak offered to create a Palestinian state in all of Gaza and 97% of the West Bank. And in 2008, Prime Minister Ehud Olmert offered to withdraw from the West Bank and partition Jerusalem. In all of these cases, the Palestinians have turned down these offers on religious, historical, and practical grounds. I believe, and we have evidence to the idea that the hope on the Arab side is that they'll acquire nuclear weapons and be able to wipe out Israel, which honestly is what they don't, they don't necessarily want a state with Israel existing. They want to wipe out Israel. They want to wipe out the Jews. They want that land. Um, there have been a great many negotiations and peace talks. They refuse to recognize the land as the state of Israel. And because of this, there's no Arab state and there's no peace. You know, as we talked about, um, you know, what was this episode two? It was a long time ago at this point. We're up to episode 12 now. But uh, as we talked about back then, I think when we had your dad on, um, who's the ambassador to uh, the Bahamas. Oh, episode three. Episode three. Okay. Um, we talked about how there is a left-wing movement that's, that is always pushing the Palestinians as the virtuous ones and the Israelis as, as, as the aggressors. And that is belied by the facts um, and, and the facts on the ground. Quite succinctly. And there are a lot of liberals who are willing to call them out on this. You do not need to necessarily toe the line with all of the super progressives who maybe have an imperfect understanding of the history of Israel or might be anti-Semitic themselves, there absolutely is a anti-Semitic wing of, of the liberal faction. I don't believe it's big. I think, you know, there's anti-Semitism on the right everywhere, as your dad talked about. There's anti-Semitism everywhere, in every political sphere, in every country. Um, but it's something we have to watch out for, for sure. Well, that's, uh, that's all the myths I got for this episode. All right. Well, we had a very, very... Long, long and fun filled episode. So, uh, yeah, we got to a lot on this um, and we had some fun. We had some serious stuff. I really like the fact that we're doing a format. We've sort of solidified our format now, and yeah. I think it's really fun. Um, again, keep it up with the discord. Please engage with us. Um, visit our socials. Jay, do you have all that information handy? Yeah, I'm going to come with that. Uh, just so you guys know, before we talk about that, we got a great guest coming up for you this week. Um, the Honorable Fred Zeidman, who's a family friend of mine, a very close family friend of my father's, uh, which is, um, it's been an amazing resource. We've gotten to some really incredible people, of course, all on the right, because that's where my dad lives. But Fred was the, uh, the chairman of the Holocaust Museum under W for both terms. So he's got um, an incredible outlook um, on Israel um, and some interesting things to say about the Republican Party as well. So that's coming up uh, this week. There's a little more discourse on this one between him and I. Yeah, 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 you get you, you get into. I mean, you know, again, it's all civil. Yeah, yeah all civil. And but, yeah. and Fred had a great time and enjoyed himself immensely. So yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, getting that one out there. Yeah, uh, yeah. W- while Jay is pulling up all our information, I want to say that there's one thing I'm disappointed with, Jay. Oh yeah, and and it is my disappointment is in the lack of people who are willing to give us very easy five stars. And even write a review. Oh my review. gosh, you're right. It's so easy to do. You it's just go a, to Apple you know, Podcasts. You know what? I listen to enough podcasts where people complain about podcast people complain about this all the time. Like, why? How hard is it to just just click five stars? That's all we ask you to do. Yeah, it's super we know easy. there's I mean, a lot of listeners. We have all the metrics. We see how many yeah, people are downloading you. it. I but see yet you. there's like five reviews. I mean, yeah. come on. Do better, guys. Do better. Help we us out. We need to get more stars. So if you do legitimately like our podcast, or even if you don't. Well, if you don't, don't give us anything less than five stars. Either give us five stars or give us nothing and then go take a hike. Yeah. Do one more thing, though, before you hike. Do it. Uh, go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. 
If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. If that's too confusing for you, just like it is for me, go to our website. They're all there. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, as Riz just told you to do on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Uh, you can follow me at, at Justin Siegel on all the socials, and you can follow Riz. I am at Rob underscore Lifer at Instagram, and I'm just Rob Lifer at Facebook. You know the drill. I'm Rob Lifer at uh, Twitter. And, You're not uh, going to say it? I'm not going to say the best looking Rob Lifer on Facebook because my wife convinced me I should probably stop saying that because now she has like people she knows that are listening. And I think it's yeah, but it's, like, it's, it's a thing now. It is a thing. It is a thing. But I've said it so many times. Okay, fine. The best looking Rob Lifer on Facebook. There he is. I'm in competition, competition with two like 80 year old men and some redneck from Philadelphia. So, We're going to uh, give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, don't forget to visit our Discord as Rob mentioned earlier. Mix it up with us. Let's talk politics. The link is in our socials for all of this stuff. And buy our t-shirts, wow your friends, by promoting moderate change done incrementally the way that it should be done. It's not sexy, but it's, it's the way it's got to be done. It's true. And we are going to create mugs, and you guys will be able to drink your coffee with, with a good, healthy dose of moderation. I love it. Yeah. I love it. All right, guys. <laughs> well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again next week. And uh, this is us signing off. Signing off. Have a good week.